around this much. I mean, in my family's business, I had a brother and a father. So I could be gone for a Monday or a Friday and not have to worry about it because they had as much at stake as I did. You know, if the business didn't run as it should, um, you know, and but it's just different. I mean, I couldn't do this without you, and I don't think you could do this without without Mark. And, and by the way, you're talking about when you were describing factories and other businesses that stay open 24-7. You know, when I got in radio, it was also that way. There weren't computers to run the radio station, so... I mean, I can remember that we used to trade off, say, okay, who's going to work Christmas Eve? Who's going to work Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day? Because it was 24-7, and there were no computers to run things like there are now. And we somebody had to be here pushing the buttons, loading the music, going to the news, whatever. And that's, okay, I'll ask you that's this. changed, As someone obviously. who has been in radio as long as you have, mm-hmm. is it a little bit discouraging and disappointing that some of the big companies, and we're not a big company, but some of the big radio conglomerates run their stations uh, from afar they run them distant i mean it's not personal you're gonna get me started here seriously but it's it's it's, it's an evolution in business i mean but you know this terrible something will come along one day and replace facebook or instagram or twitter i mean it's always the case Uh, i've said it before and i'll say it again my father convinced me at a very early age that businesses don't have life cycles they have death cycles Every business that has ever been started will eventually go out of business. Now, the government would be a different animal, but it's not really a business. Um, but uh, anyway, that's just kind of a the, the predictability, um, the, the consistency is a, is a big deal here. And I, I do think, I agree with Rev. I mean, it's a, um, we've cultivated an audience. An audience has certain expectations, and they become comfortable with the certain way we do things, or they don't like the way we do things. We've tried a couple of things that didn't go well, and we look back on it in retrospect and say, probably wasn't smart to try and do it that way. The majority of those are mine. I mean, the majority <laughs> of changes have been things I wanted to do, and uh, and some have worked out and some have not worked out. But I do believe this. You can't do a show today like you did 10 years ago. you got to freshen it up. you got to put a fresh coat of paint on it, um, give a, a little bit different flavor to whatever it is you're doing, but you, but you can't get too smart for your own good or too big for your own britches, is how my mom would say it <laughs> right. uh, back in the day. 843-661-0937. I am on a journey, and I need help because I get lost. I mean, I really get lost in these. I am unbelievably bored right now with the the natural cycle of politics. I'm, I'm in the recession, the, the interest rate hike, um, the bill the Democrats passed yesterday. I am unbelievably not interested in that. Although I think you're talking about the the thing that Mansion finally agreed to. Well, I mean, Mansion signed off on this uh, Inflation Protection yeah, what Act. What in the world? Well, I mean, it, it's nonsense. The, the the key figure, I mean, the key part of this uh, Inflation Protection Act that Mansion and Schumer cut a deal on yesterday, I think it's three hundred sixty nine billion dollars in green energy initiatives. Um, that's not as much as they wanted. I mean, that's nowhere near as much as they wanted. And there could be a chance that the Democrats in the House and part of the reconciliation, it may end up going to a conference committee. Um, in other words, the Democrats were in agreement on green energy. I mean, they, they want to invest in green energy, but this is nowhere near enough for AOC and some of the real liberal wing. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch what Bernie Sanders has to say about this. The, the reason they, they probably get Bernie on board There's another part of this bill, and and I'm going to give somebody some advice. You ready? Here's what I'd advise someone to do. If you are in the market of health insurance, as much as you don't like the Not-So-Affordable Care Act, you need to take a look-see 
you really need to go look and see what your options are in healthcare.org. I think the website finally started working as it should. Um, and the reason is in this um, in this bill, in this uh, 300 and, uh, 300 and, well, it's about a half billion, half a trillion dollars, about $500 <laughs> billion. Um, now they believe they're going to make up the revenue with the 15% corporate minimum tax that they say will generate about 750, uh, $739 billion. I want to get it right, $739 billion over 10 years. So they believe that they'll collect more in tax from corporate America as a result of this minimum, uh, the corporate minimum tax. That's the revenue side of this. The expenditure side, once again, is $369 billion allocated to energy and climate initiatives. Now, now I've not seen the bill, not read the bill. Um, I've read a synopsis of the bill. Um, I'll try to read it over the weekend. I doubt I get to read it between today and tomorrow. i got to go to Hartsville tonight and speak to their group. I don't know what time. If anybody listens to the show that, that knows what time I need to be there, please let me. Please let And where? <laughs> let me know where and when. Oh, that's funny. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'll be there. I mean, I committed to do this a while back. <laughs> as long a, as you know where, where, where yeah. there is. Well, I mean, Speaker Jay Lucas called me one day and said, hey, um, will you do something for me? What? Um, they're having this sp- summer jamboree or summer slam. I don't wrestle. I mean, that's why I don't wrestle, man. I mean, I fight for real. You know, I don't fake wrestle, so I'm not going to SummerSlam. He said, nah, um, you know, as much as they love me, they I think they might like you even more. So thank you to the people in Darlington County and Hartsville for inviting me there. It's on my calendar. I mean, I got notified yesterday, uh, and I, I never forgot it. I always knew it was July 28th, um, but I don't know what time. Uh, so, so if anybody listening to the show, and, and I'll repeat this a couple of times, um, call in and let Freehold know. You know what time I need to be there to um, this afternoon there, or tonight. I, no, I, I mean, I got an email. I can find out where okay, it is. Right. But I don't think the email is inclusive of, you know, what time. So, um, yeah, you, I need to know what time. You don't want to be time. late for your own I don't need to be late uh, for giving my own speech. So, anyway, let's go back to this. You ready? Um, Manchin agrees to sign off on or to vote for this um this scaled back build back better. I mean, it, it's scaled down. It's um It's not as big as it was, but here's why it's kind of interesting to me. And uh, as a private contractor, um, I'm always looking for a better deal on healthcare. I mean, you're in the company policy. I'm not, I'm a private contractor. I'm not an employee of community broadcasters. Um, I have my own little company and my company um, has a lot of other interests. So anyway, um, I'm always trying to save a buck on healthcare because I'm the guy getting killed. I mean, I'm the guy that gets killed when the not so affordable care act came down the pike. Um, if there's a, um, if there's a trash heap, of uh, people who got, you know, hurt, I would be one of the, the small businessman and woman, especially the sole proprietor or, or the independent contractor. I mean, he's the one that got killed. So my health care has become unbelievably expensive. And I've cared to some of you on that journey with me with, you know, MetaShare and Sidecar and some of these others. Um, and it's still cost prohibitive, uh, there's a debate to be had about you get the write-off on health insurance. You don't get the write-off in MediShare. You don't get the write-off in. So when you start doing the calculus and you start figuring, okay, net, what am I in to this thing for? I mean, I know the gross number, but after you get the tax break, uh, net, what am I into this? I sound like a business guy now because I am. Um, everything's not net. <laughs> I don't care what the gross is. What is the net? So, um, so they're adding $64 billion to extend what I'll call the expiring federal subsidies for people buying health insurance. Why does that matter? There, there was, there was. remember during COVID, there, there were a lot of things happening. We, we kind of knew, you know, six trillion, seven trillion. What is the number? How much have they spent? Um, 
there was a there was a a portion of that money spent toward um, allowing the subsidy floor to be increased. In other words, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you made X number of dollars a year, and it was a certain percentage of the national poverty level, in other words, your household makes 200% of the national poverty level, you qualify for subsidies in the Obama health care exchange. That number was increased. And and the way I read the bill and the way I read, I mean, the, the, the credits were to expire at the end of this year. The way I read the bill, it extends those credits in perpetuity, really. I mean, it doesn't put a deadline on it. Now, once again, I've not read the bill. I've read some of the synopsis of the bill. But here's what matters to me and you. I mean, if you're in my boat, if you're a small businessman or woman or a sole proprietor or a uh, independent contractor, here's why it matters. My math says that you can make about $125,000 or $30,000 a year and qualify for federal subsidies in health care. In other words, um, if you are an independent contractor and you're making a buck thirty a year, that's good money. I mean, that ain't getting rich money, but that's good money. Uh, some of y'all, that is getting rich money as far as I'm concerned. Well, I mean, that's, that is a substantial salary in, in the PD region of South Carolina. If you're in Manhattan, different story. If you lived in Austin, Texas, different story. But, but in Florence, South Carolina, Sumter, South Carolina, Orangeburg, South Carolina, making that kind of money uh, allows you to afford a pretty good quality of life, good, pretty good lifestyle. But here's what the, the extension of the subsidies does, as I understand it. Um, it allows someone making in excess of $100,000 a year. We can debate what that number is. Uh, but it allows someone making in excess of $100,000 a year to fully qualify for federal subsidies. And I punched some numbers in on the healthcare.org website. And it's amazing how much subsidy you qualify if you're not broke or not rich. In other words, if you do okay and you're, you're able to pay your bills, um, the extension, the increase during COVID, because they want to help everybody during COVID. I'm going to give the Democrats a chance to create a wish list and they'll they'll help everybody whether they intend to or not. Because I don't think the Democrats <laughs> have a lot of interest in helping, you know, a private contractor, you know, doing okay. I mean, it's always about the impoverished and, and government dependency and all these other sorts of things. And maybe it was intentional, maybe not. But the $64 billion in this bill, is to extend the increase in what I call the income threshold of which you qualify and are eligible for federal subsidies. Here's my point. If you if your insurance costs you $1,700 a month, let's just throw that number out there. If, if you got a wife and a kid and your insurance, let's say you got a wife and two kids and your insurance, your health insurance is costing you $1,700 a month, take a look-see and punch your numbers in at the healthcare.org and I would argue that if you're a family making a buck twenty a year, I mean, if you're a household of four making one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, you're going to qualify for about eighty percent of your premium. I mean, it, it's what? pretty bizarre. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty bizarre. Wow. And I think businesses need to look at this. I mean, if you're a business and you're mandated to provide health care because the federal, I mean, the, the not so affordable care act basically mandates of certain businesses that that have certain employment to to. I mean, they're required via federal law to provide health insurance. Pretty crazy. Um, but they get the tax right off them. There, there's, you know, still the, the gross and net are different here. But but I believe that that is a, a result of the extension of these subsidies or these expanded subsidies. I think a business owner could basically say to his employees, I don't know how legal this is, and I don't know who has to, to bless it or not, but you could say to your employees, hey, go on that health care website and log your information in 
And if you let's say your health care is going to cost a cost a thousand dollars and they're going to give you eight hundred dollars in subsidies, I'll boot the two hundred. I mean, I'll give you the two hundred. I don't have to worry about, you know, the minutiae of right. health care filing. Save and, a lot of uh, money. You better believe it. You better believe it. Now, now once again, um, take it from, from me for what it's worth. I'm the guy that told you, Rev asked me the morning after the uh, the CARES Act. He said, what what do you what, what stands out to you? I mean, before we went on the air, Rev said, hey, have you read this stupid bill? I mean, this, <laughs> when, I mean, this is when everything was crazy. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that in just a second. This is when everything was going crazy. And I told Rev, before we went on the air, I said, Rev, it looks to me like with this federal unemployment enhancement that someone can make more money not going to work. And where are I we today? That. I mean, where are we today? Uh, and once again, that, that that is a quick review of the bill that is not seeing the details nor the skinny on exactly what they're trying to do. And I'm not giving advice to anybody, but I kind of am. I mean, if you're out there dealing with expensive health care, and most of us are, and you don't work with the government, you know, and they, they, they've got these great benefit plans and programs, the majority of people in the private sector don't enjoy that sort of of luxury. So if you're in the private sector and you struggle with the cost of health care, I'm not saying I'm for this program or against this program. I mean, I oppose Obamacare because it's socialized health insurance in America today. And, you know, it mandated that everybody must have health insurance. I wish someone would mandate that everybody has to advertise on conservative talk radio because advertising would get mighty expensive if that were the case. So they basically created a a non-free market in health insurance and health care for that matter. Um, but they may have allowed some people like me, you know, to benefit from something that we probably normally shouldn't be benefiting from because of their uh, government overreach and their ever-expanding notion of government. But I'll try to get you some details and specifics, but but you, a lot of you made too much money. You're not some of you made too much money to qualify for subsidies. And it wasn't worth going down that road. Uh, that's changed. It's different. It's it's fundamentally different now. And the number didn't go from fifty grand to fifty five grand. Uh, but the number more than doubled at when you qualify for some of these um, federal subsidies. And as a, I mean, if I owned a business with sixty or seventy employees, I don't. I did, but I don't anymore. But if I did, I would try to really do the math and see whether this makes more sense than than me, you know, paying for the. The, the health care, the health insurance of an employee and, and, you know, payroll deducting his spouse and kids and all. I mean, that's kind of a, a traditional really, isn't formula. isn't this part of the whole goal? I mean, it's where the Affordable oh, Care course. Act started government run to get to single payer. Sure, government run health care. Well, I mean, it's single payer is probably too far a reach. Universal health care. But it's, yeah. it's stepping in that direction. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they, they would love for everybody to have people. to go to, for everyone to have to go to this single portal to buy health insurance. I mean, I think that's what we've always done. Well, I mean, all of a sudden, if you if you didn't believe you qualified for subsidies because you made too much money, all of a sudden, you probably do qualify for subsidies. And I'm talking about, I mean, it, it's a big savings. I mean, if the, if the numbers are what I think the numbers are, it's a pretty big savings to go to healthcare.org. As a result, and once again, in COVID, they raised the income threshold to allow for qualification of subsidies and the $64 billion in the bill extends some of these um, expiring enhanced federal subsidies relating to health care, helping people pay for health insurance. It's not health care, it's health insurance. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. We're back on a Thursday morning. I want to go down this. Um, I mean, obviously, there are stories out there. They're in the mainstream. I mean, no question about it. And... Um, 
but but I'm I'm on this journey, and here's what I'm after, and here's what I want to try to uh, discern, and I want, I need your help. I mean, I really do because it, I mean I know what I think, but but I'm one man amongst millions and millions and millions who hold these views and 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 espouse those views in a in a public sort of way. But I want to go back and I mean we touched on it a little bit yesterday. Um, we're in a recession. I mean, we're going to get a report today that probably says negative 1.7-ish, somewhere thereabout. Now, if you ask the White House. Well, I mean, that, that doesn't matter to me. See, that's what I'm saying. We are so focused on what this dominant narrative is. Are we in a recession or not? What we, You're buying into that, and I'm buying into that because I'm debating it. It's not even a debate. I mean, stop debating it. I mean, it's, we are in a recession. We're going to have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Everybody in the world knows uh, that that matters. I mean, they has any interest in what a recession is. Um, I mean, my daughter doesn't know the tech. Well, she probably does. Um, but I'm going to say, the people that need to know what a recession is or are, I mean, they know. I mean, they, they can say whatever they choose to say. They can manipulate, lie, distort. Uh, it doesn't matter. Here, here's the point I'm trying to make. And, and I think we've got to get our arms around this. There are some stories, and, and I think really and truly, Rev, these stories are, are not being covered because they are fundamentally transformational in our country's existence and future and where we've been and where it is we aspire to go. And they're philosophical. And we don't have enough philosophical debate in America today. I mean, we're going to have this this 30-second debate about recession or not. Um, you know, the White House says this, but the Republicans say that. And I think we are so consumed. And I know I've talked a lot about this dominant narrative theory, um, but it's, it, it's really and truly it, it's what we believe. Why do we believe what we believe? I wrote a question down to myself this morning. What is the source of what you believe to be true? I mean, ponder that for a second. I'm not, I mean, I'm not a professor. I'm not a teacher. I'm not giving a lesson. I'm not trying to give a lecture. I'm not, uh, I mean, every now and then I'll try a tutorial or two, you know, on certain issues that I think I have a, a pretty good understanding of. The Fed would be one. I mean, I've, I devoted a good bit of time trying to understand the history of the Fed, the the activism of the Fed, the manipulation of the Fed. Um, it's kind of interesting now. The Fed has gotten itself in a place. Um, I mean, the, is the Fed activist? Yeah. Has the Fed distorted? Yeah. Has the Fed manipulated? Yeah. You know what the question is, the philosophical question? Has the Fed broken economic reality to a point it can't be repaired? Remember the point Larry made this morning? Um, maybe we're not in a recession. Maybe the, the normal and typical definitions don't apply anymore. I mean, maybe maybe we've crossed, uh, you know, uh, maybe there's been a paradigm shift. Maybe we're in a new world where former definitions don't apply. Maybe Janet Yellen's right. Uh, I mean, maybe because of the Fed being so activist and so distortive and so, in my opinion, destructive uh, to the um, to the dollar of which most of us, you know, base what we can do or not, Springsteen tickets, going to Disney World, you know, buying your Gamecock or Tiger football tickets. I mean, all that comes down to how much money you have and what's the value of that money you've got in your in your pocket. But but I, I just think we're at a point in American history where we, we must be required to have th- this philosophical debate about who we are, what we stand for, what we believe in, um, what is the path forward. And I do think the dominant narrative debate that I've tried to force upon our listeners um, and I'm bad about that, and I know I am. I'm, I'm terrible about making you talk about what it is I want you to talk about. I mean, I'll force you down this road. My wife despises when I get like this. But but I just believe that if we're going to have a debate on what the technical definition, excuse me, what the real definition of recession is, then we're not going to get to a better place. 
The White House is not going to own up to a recession. You know why the White House is able to redefine what words mean? Hmm. Because of this this um this commandeering of the debate. That this manipulative way that the media what did Robert Kahaley said yesterday? Robert said a lot. You know the most interesting thing Robert said to me? Because I'm trying to be somewhat philosophical here. You know the most interesting thing Kahaley said? The media is trying to shift the debate from the midterms to the presidential election. You remember what he said that? I mean, it's very interesting. I said, Robert, why do I feel like we're running for president now? That's the media. I mean, that's the media. You know, this um, th- this this narrative they're trying to create. The data says no. Let's pay attention to the to the to the midterms. I mean, we've got hotly contested races. We we've got the balance of power. You know, in in play. The the Republicans could take over the House and Senate. We've got negative economic news. We've got bad, you know, economic outcomes. We've got a lot of that. But, but the media says, no, look at what we're going to do. See, that's the dominant narrative. So the media right. begins kind of talking about Trump, talking about Pence, talking about Gavin Newsom. Why? Because their team sucks right now. The, the, the propaganda machine that is the American mainstream media is trying to convince you and I, and I fail for it. Because I ask Haley, why do I feel like we're running for pre- I know better than that. I know better than to trust the media and what they're prioritizing as newsworthy. And I did it anyway. So I'm no different than the majority of us. Um, I'd, I'd like to be on guard a little more than most. But but the once again, the dominant narrative is, hey, the Democrats are going to suck in the midterms because the economy and inflation and recession, despite what they say or not, um, let's move past that and let's show Pence and let's show Trump. And did you know Gavin Newsom is advertised? Wonder what he's up to. Seventy. The new latest story from CNN: seventy-five percent of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to run again. Why is CNN reporting that? CNN never reports on anything that paints Democrats in negative light, except when they're trying to get you to pay attention to something other than what is right before mm. our very eyes. So the fundamental question I'm posing this morning, and we have many, many, many listeners and callers much smarter and brighter than I am. What is the source of what you believe to be true? I mean, I just think that is an interesting question. Um, and once again, I'm reading about this and I'm reading about that. I'm trying to better understand this. I've actually went back. I mean, I'll tell you how weird I am. I went back and looked at the excuse me the, uh, the March 16 press conference when Trump, Dr. Burks, and Anthony Fauci appeared. Um, and and that's, remember me saying Trump blinked. Sure. I, what I was trying to remember, I mean, if I'm going to say that, then, then you know, defend it. I mean, in other words, if you're going yeah. to accuse somebody of something, how then did he blink? How did he blink? And, and at March 16, 2020 is when he blinked. And I've got a transcript of the of the uh, the, the press conference. And I want to go into that in a second. But I want you to think about this. I mean, together, not not just me, not just you, but all of us together. What is the source of what you believe to be true? I mean, that is a fundamentally philosophical, Interesting. but it's an important question, Reb. Uh, CNN yesterday or the day before reports just out of the blue that 75% of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to run for reelection. So I'm, I'm the kind of, why would CNN report that? I mean, why would they paint their guy in a bad light? And then Kahaley says what he says, remember, remember. The media is in this dominant narrative. They don't care what the data says. They could care less what the data says. And the reason it led me down this road, I think that the the COVID response and the vaccine information was was the to, to me the, the the categorical definition of dominant narrative. How many of you believed 
Maybe you believed it reluctantly, but how many of you believed what Fauci and Burke said because they were the experts? You see where I'm headed? Sure. And, and, I, and we all we. And we, I'm trying to apply that thought to the question about recession. You know what? Why I why I believe or think I know that a recession is defined by two quarters of negative GDP. Okay. What do you? What is the source? But I, I, that, the, that makes you believe that to be true. The source is, I guess, the media said that economists define it that way in history. Every every example in American sense? history. Yeah, every time Amer- the American economy has had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, it's been called a recession. We've had recessions declared without two negative quarters of GDP growth. I mean, there's been a time or two. I mean, there's been a debate, a postmortem debate about it. You know, was it or was it not? a recession, um, but never before in American history has there been two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth that has not been called a recession. Um, but but th- this is much deeper than that. I mean, we, Carl and I had a debate about Trump yesterday. I mean, uh, you know, we have debates with a lot of our callers and listeners. I have a source for what I believe to be true. W- what is that source? You have a something, something convinces Dave Baker that this is true. You believe it because it's true, but you can't believe it because Freehold told you or I told you there's got to be some valid source, some some source of validation that says, okay, I believe this. Somebody, I asked somebody that question yesterday. You know what? They responded via text. Um, I believe in the data. I said, who do you trust to provide the data? Uh, we, we live in a right. world, and, and once again, this is this and, dominant narrative. do you believe narrative. that data can be just be made up sure. to create a narrative? Or distorted or, or completely and totally distorted. Let's go to the phone. We have Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Good morning, guys. Well, Ken, welcome to the post-postmodern era. Mm. See, we've we've lived through it. And postmodernism said everything you were told is a lie. We have the truth. Post-postmodernism says there is no truth. And this is where we're sitting. How do you know anything? What's your source? Well. Uh, I'll tell you fundamentally, my, my primary source for how I know what is true are, are two things. One is the Bible, because it's not just a story about spirituality. It is a philosophy and a way of thinking. It presents a very, really, it's the foundation of Western thought in a lot of areas. You know, if you do this, you get that. If you do this, this will happen. And so we learn cause and effect. And that's probably the secondary way that I learn a lot of things. And it's the way you learn a lot of things. There are a handful of things that I just can't talk you out of because you've experienced it for yourself. Don't tell me what you think. I know what I saw, right? You probably said something like that before. Of course. No, no, no. no. You, you can't tell me that. This happened to me. So we learn whether they like it or not through experience. So you have to take your experience and then some fundamental source of wisdom. And here's why I choose the Bible, because other than it, everything I have ever learned has come from a broken person with an agenda. Everything except what's in the Bible. That's very well explained. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. I thought of Larry when I kind of started down this road, um, and I just think it's an interesting question, and maybe Larry's right. Maybe this is a post postmodern world um there is no truth there there's only an exploration for the truth um and i think larry's i mean I, you know larry and, and my biblical worldview lead us down that road um and it's interesting he would say that because I, I thought about it last night the 
the source for what I believe to be true is my experiences. I mean, my business life, my personal life, my marriage, my raising of my kids. I know you can't do this this way because that happens. How do I know that happens? Because I lived it. It may not have happened for you, but Larry's not going to convince me otherwise. Larry's probably got things that have happened in your life, Rev. You've got things that have happened in your life. Um, and I would say, well, I don't understand that. And, but I'm not going to change your mind because you live that. I mean, you experienced that in the first hand. You've got the scars on your back, so to speak, you know, that, that reveal that, that, that chapter or episode of your life. I just think that uh, if we live in a world where we refuse to find what truth is, what do we do there? I mean, how, how do we get there? I mean, how do we how do we live there? I understand how you get there. I mean, I, I certainly understand the blurring of the lines and, uh, you know, not believing in certain um, truths of the world. I mean, it, to, to me, Christianity is is my anchor in the in the sand. I mean, it's, it's where I anchor my life. Now, now, once again, I'm no different than anybody else. I get, I mean, I'll drag that anchor down the beach. You know what I mean? I'll drag that anchor kicking and screaming to where I want it to be and where I want to go. But there has to be some way. There has to be some way we as a nation revisit the fundamental belief in something to be true. And right now, it's hard. I mean, it's real, real, real hard. And when Robert said yesterday, because I think I'm pretty good at this, when Robert said yesterday, stop talking about the presidential election, that's what the media wants you to do. And and it's uh, he's right. He's exactly right. And, and the, you know, the, the masters of this, the masters of this domain are unbelievably cagey, brilliant, savvy, um, <laughs> effective at doing these sorts of things. And once again, guys, we can talk recession. We, we can talk GDP. I mean, all of those things, you can find a million different places to read about a recession. You can find a hundred. I think some of these conversations, and they're not philosophical, but they are in some weird sort of way. But we live in a world that requires us to understand what is true and what is not, what is accurate and what is not. And damn fit it in hard. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Couple of callers. Let's go there. Jason and Marion. Good morning. Good morning, fellas. Uh, can I was telling Mike that you can't expect a Bruce Springsteen fan to know anything about raising his machine. It's a good thing he didn't play in Slipknot. Yeah, but Morello um, played lead guitar for Bruce for many, many, many years. I did not know that. Yeah, Morello played, I think, uh, 70 or 80 shows with the E Street Band. Wow. Yeah, I've heard a story, or somebody told me about a story the other day, and I've not heard of it anywhere on the news media. I thought for sure I'd hear it on talk radio. And he actually had to send me some information on it because I had not heard about it. And... Um, Basically, Russia and China collaborated or joined forces uh, to make a new world economy or a dominant economy, and it's based on minerals like gold, silver, titanium, you know, things like that. And they're trying to, you know, get rid of the U.S. dollar as the, you know, dominant currency. And I'm just surprised I have not heard that. I think it just happened this weekend. Have you? Read into that, heard about it. What, what's going on with that? And I'll take it off the air. You guys have a good one. Thank you, Jason. I mean, th there's a lot of working in concert between Russia and China when it comes to economic affairs. I mean, mineral, uh, what are called natural, uh, natural. Help me here, Rev. I mean, just uh, natural resources. Some of the natural, they have abundant natural resources of certain kinds in Russia as well as in China. Some of the uh, some of the people believe that the Ukraine play 
is about, you know, natural resources. Ukraine is a, uh, a lot of potash and, and limestone and things like that. You know, we pay attention to the sexy stuff, but, but that's not what is required to keep us afloat. I mean, some of these natural resources, minerals, copper, iron, uh, titanium, all these sorts of things go into nearly everything we produce and consume. So, yes, I mean, Jason, I've read a lot of stories about Russia and China collaborating and it's really China driving the majority of this. Now, I mean, Putin's a, a nostalgic. I mean, Putin believes uh, that he wants to, I mean, before he la- leaves this planet, he wants to reestablish the Soviet dominance as a world superpower. But China sees Russia as ca- kind of a, a third wheel. In other words, the, the, the real battle, the real geopolitical um, battle for dynasty is between the United States and the, uh, the, the communist regime of China. China sees Russia as complementary to them being the preeminent superpower. And I think China's made it known that their ambition is to be the preeminent superpower to supplant the United States of America as the dominant political geopolitical force in the world. And I would argue, I mean, I think China's going to have a rough patch here for a while, but I would argue that over the last 25 or 30 years, if one nation is on the ascent and one is on the descent, I mean, it's obvious China is getting the best of America in the past 25 or 30 years. Are they playing Putin? Probably not, because Putin, once again, is a nostalgic about the former Soviet Union. But but I think China is in a much more um, threatening position to United States superpower um, status than, than the former Soviet Union. Let's go to the phone. Do we have time to take a call? About 40 seconds for Dale. Can Dale hold, hold on? Dale, can you hold on or you want to try it? Uh, let me try it. I'll be 63 next month. In the 70s, gas prices doubled. Inflation shot up. That's where I get my information from. That's what I trust. You guys have a good day. Thank you, sir. Yeah, he lived it. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't, um, yeah, you trust your eyes. You trust what you see and what you lived. And, uh, that, that's kind of what your experience is. I mean, Rev and I were talking to the other Your experiences lead you to believe something is true. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number, but it's Thursday morning at 7 o'clock. That means Reggie Armstrong is here to give us a uh, kind of a briefing or an update yeah. or his take on whatever uh, the situation is at hand. But I want to ask you this, Reg. Sure. Um, you and I are contemporaries of one another. We're, yep. we're of the same generation, about yep. the same age. Um, I woke up one day and was nearly 60. I mean, you know what I mean? I never <laughs> yeah, imagined yeah. I would get this far down the road. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the concern I have is... You know, I mean, it is financially related, mm-hmm. but it's time. It, yeah. It's it's a little bit like we live in a very volatile market. Mm-hmm. And and as a 30-year-old, I'm not much concerned about the volatility That's because right. I, I know I'll weather some some ups and downs. But as I get older, mm-hmm. it makes me much more concerned sure. to the point of being nervous sure. about what happens in the next 10 or yeah. 12. Or, should we have that perspective and how can we address the concerns? Sure. And it's, you know, depending on where we are in our life cycle, it makes a huge difference how we invest, okay? Or at least it should. You know, the challenge I see is sometimes younger people aren't, aren't doing the things they need to do to get on track, and older people realizing what they should have done sometimes make mistakes in trying to catch up. Stop, Reggie. Stop that. That's, I'm taking that. I'm taking that personal. <laughs> Ouch. So, so I'll, I'll chat a couple of things that some of my older clients and friends and people who have just said, you know, uh, what what would you have? What I've asked them, what would you have done differently? I, when, when I wrote a chapter to to that book, the 
you know, on, on the myth of the rich doctor, uh, you know, that was, you know, that was one of the questions I asked some of my physician clients is what would you have done differently? And, and if you don't mind, I'll chat a few Please of those do. for the younger crowd, and then we'll shift to the slightly older sure, crowd. Sure, sure. And, and so, you know, I'll, I'll stay away from the, from some of the more boring stuff that's important. Like, yeah, you got to watch your debt. Don't get, don't get on, you know, over your head. Uh, watch the lifestyle creep. You know, it's easy to try to keep up with the Joneses. Next thing you know, you get a thousand dollar raise and, and you're spending 1100 of it, so to speak. So, but one of the key things, almost everyone I've chatted with Ken is, is, Hey, they would have invested sooner. You know, when we're 22, we think, well, we got lots of time. I need this money. It's my first real paycheck. And so they don't start putting away the, the smart people. They do. They, they, they start putting away that 10 or 20%. In fact, sometimes at 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, you don't have any humongous bills yet. If you're fortunate, that's a good time to get those habits in place. You know, so invest sooner, invest more and don't stop. Don't let the market freak you out when you're 28. I mean, you don't, especially if it's money and I'm talking about retirement monies, if it's different goals, Ken, uh, you need the money in five years. Well, that's a different kettle of fish. We can discuss that another time. Um, Increase what you invest over time. I mean, a, a good example is you get a $400 $400 raise. Invest 200 of that $400 and then enjoy the other 200. We will assume it's after taxes for right now, sure. but it's, you know, um invest aggressively when young. Don't let market vagaries freak you out. Now, I don't mean invest stupidly. You can, you can you know, there's a difference between investing aggressively and being idiotic about it and I, you know, putting it all on, you know, betting it all on black kind of thing. You know, you got to be careful, but aggressively meaning don't be afraid of equities. Don't be afraid of being 100% stocks. Again, this is not specific advice for any individual, but in general, when you're younger, you've got time to weather it, time's on your side. And when the market does a pullback like it recently has, that's usually a good time to nibble. To, to Hey, do I've got an extra $1,000 somewhere? Let me, let me buy, you know, the, the NASDAQ or, you know, stock type stocks or what have you. Um, take advantage of those 401ks. You know, Dave Ramsey gives a lot of good stuff out there. But one of the areas where he and I disagree is, you know, he says you got to get out of all debt before you participate in your 401k. Well, guess what? Um, if they're giving free money, if they're matching you 100% of your, you know, uh, of your first 3% or 50% of your first 6%, I mean, you can't be free. I mean, put away 3% of your paycheck and get that free money. That's important to take advantage of those things. Uh, you can do both if you, you know, if you're going through it. Um, now, let's say you've been going along and you're now 38, 48, 58, you know, and, and well, your time frame has changed. So, you know, you, you've got $400,000 and you're, you really thought you should have 800000 by now. And all of a sudden you start taking risks that you maybe shouldn't have. So you have to take, again, the older we are, the closer we are to our goals, the different tack we have to take. But here's an interesting statistic I'll put, because I know you've got different things going on on the show coming up and I want to keep uh, to my time here, is, you know, here's one of the things several individuals have told me over time is they would have used a, a financial professional sooner than they thought was necessary. Oftentimes when we're young, we're like, hey, I just got to point my... I just got to point to the target, but between changing tax laws, IRA laws, and and sometimes it's what you don't know. There's lots of investment opportunities you may not be aware of. Here's an interesting statistic. 70% of millionaires use a financial advisor. 90% of millennial millionaires use a financial advisor. 
Okay. Now that's interesting because you know we always think the the younger crowd, the millennials, Gen Z, that they're kind of the do-it-yourselfers. Well, a good chunk of them are, but those who are successful apparently believe that there's value in getting professional advice. Um, so, anyways, I'll close on this, Ken. For you know, I mean, I know we just had the Federal Reserve increase, uh, you know, their their benchmark rate by 75 basis points. Today, we'll find out whether. We're in a technical recession or not, and all that good stuff. 8.30 a.m. today, we'll, we'll, we'll find that out. But here's, here's a good piece of advice. You know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. But the second best time is today. So if, you, you know, if, you, if you're not on track, it's always a good time to say, hey, what can I do at this stage of my life to help me take care of my financial goals or at least be better at it? That's very well explained. Appreciate that. If you um you talked about the percentage of um successful people yeah. or financially uh, independent people sure. who have made that decision, um, that's what you're in the business to do. How can someone initiate that conversation with Armstrong Wealth? Sure. Give us a call, 843-292-9997 to see if we're a good fit, or you can check us out on the web first, armstrongwealth.com. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Appreciate it, Ken. Rev. Okay. Good morning. I want to go back to um, to something financially related, but someone held on during uh, Reggie's segment. I want to make sure we respect their time and go to the caller. It's Carl in the PD. Morning, Carl. Hey, good morning, Ken and Dave. How are you? Good morning, sir. Morning. How are you? Good. Okay. You were asking, Ken, what can you believe and what, what sources do you trust? Correct? What is the source of what you believe to be true? Okay. I'm I'm flexible with my sources, but here's what I believe. Here's what I actually can believe to be true. I believe facts, meaning this thing happened, or this person did. It's always associated with something that took place, and so um, you know that that's that's why I have a problem with your friend Scott Kaufman. Because he refuses to uh, embrace facts, and 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 this, and a lot of people refuse to do that. But the problem I have with him is that his profession, as a history professional, um, people are trusting him to be faithful to facts. Now, uh, Larry brought up the Bible. Okay, now Ken, you used to go to church presentable, but I know you go there with your with your um you know your shorts and flip flops. No, I do not. <laughs> I don't wear a tie anymore, but I don't go with shorts and flip flops. Uh, okay, well, but you heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, right? I have. Those the four gospel four, accounts of the story of Jesus. Right. And so even Christians have, have, have used that term gospel to mean this is the beautiful truth. This is the exact truth. And I grew up thinking that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were more like the ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS of the Bible. Because you could read them and you see, you know, kind of the same stories over and over again about, you know, the birth and miracles and death and resurrection of Jesus. And they, you know, you never knew which, which, you know, book it was, but they're not all the same, but they, they, um, corroborated a lot of things. And if you saw it in two or three of them, you could say, okay, well, I can pretty much say that that actually happened. That's all. That's all I believe is what has been corroborated. And someone can say, okay, well, this happened. 
Do you realize, Ken, there was never a prodigal son in the Bible? You realize that? Mm-hmm. There was never any ten virgins. There was um, because then there was never like those those talentless three guys that got the, the one, five, and ten talents. I have money. It was because those were stories. Those were parables that Jesus was teaching. And so the only factual thing is, well, did he say it enough that you know two or three people wrote it down? Then you can believe that he actually said it. But it's not. It doesn't matter that he, you know, that those people were fictional. He was trying to make a point. But that, I mean that. But so I, you know, I don't put um, my you know, stock in every word of the Bible because the first part of the Bible says um, you should not make any graven images or any likenesses of anything, and you not not bow down to them. And I can't go to any Catholic church, well, some, some Catholic churches I can, but most old Catholic churches are full of statues of people that are graven images and a big crucifix of Jesus, a white man on the cross, you know, suffering and, and crying down at you. And they expect you to come in and bow down to that. So, you know, that that's that's one. So that's in, in the Bible not to do that. And you go to the largest Christian denomination on the planet and they make you do that. So, you know, the Bible is, you know, is what it is, but the source is not so important to me. It's what has been corroborated and what you could say are facts. And that's why, you know, um, that's why Scott Kaufman is my favorite human pinata because he refuses to face facts. And he, because a lot of the facts that he, um, just glosses over and doesn't say anything about our stuff that he doesn't want to be true. Thank you, Cole. Appreciate that. Kind of an interesting analysis. I'll, I'll use Rev as an example here. Rev, let me let me pick on you for a second. Okay. Um, is two plus two four? Yes. Is that factually accurate? I believe it is. That's not your opinion. I mean that that's right. a fact. I mean that's a uh, mathematical science says two plus two equals four. The repetitive nature of that truth. Um, it confirms. Uh, we'll probably get to a place sooner than later, as Larry said, this post postmodern world where two plus two equals <laughs> yeah. whatever you want it Somebody equal. Say, yeah. Okay, but, but no, stick with me for does. a second now. So, so because of the repetitive nature of that being the scientifically and mathematically proved answer, two plus two is not equal four. Is not your opinion, but rather a fact. Was Trump a good president? I believe he was. Okay, yes. you believe he was. Mm-hmm. Um, by what metric do you base that on? I mean, we base the two plus two equals four on the repetitive nature of mathematical science. Um, it just is. I mean, it's always been. It mm-hmm. always will be. I don't know if it always will be, but 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 you see where I'm headed, right? Um, so some of these others, and I think Carl brings up an interesting. I don't think Matthew lied. I don't think Mark lied. I don't think Luke lied. I don't think John lied. But they didn't tell the story exactly the same way. I mean, th- they expressed a belief in the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, died on a cross, and raised from the dead. But their counting was not two plus two equals four. Um, it, it was kind of interesting in the way they articulated um, that very important story in human history. Um, what is the source of what we believe to be true? I just think that's an interesting and perplexing argument and debate to have, especially in today's uber confusing times. Take a break back in just a minute. 
Thursday morning, most Thursday mornings, Ray Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker joins us. John is with us this morning. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today as well. Well, I am doing well. So we have struggled uh, over the airwaves trying to debate GDP growth and does two negative quarters, uh, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth equate to a recession. We've actually had more of a um, a sincere debate about that reality than I thought we would. But this morning's GDP numbers are to come out. I think at 830, uh, the Department of Commerce will release those numbers do we expect it to be um, what we call a classical recession? And, and, and how damaging or what sort of play did the Biden administration uh, when this data comes out? Well, here we are. We're talking about an hour before the GDP number comes out. Uh, and we know it's going to be anemic. We don't know whether it's going to be uh, negative or just a little bit uh, above zero. Uh, but we know it's not going to be a very uh, good number as far as the, the economy is concerned, and certainly politically as far as the administration is concerned. That being said, uh, my understanding uh, of the economy is that two negative quarters in a row is the definition of a recession. So you can't just simply rewrite the definition to suit your purposes, which the administration would like to do. Uh, it could be negative today. Uh, if that's the case, then Yes, we're in a recession uh, or uh, not. Uh, and we'll just have to wait and see. I can tell you this, though, Ken, regardless of whether we're in a recession or not, we feel the pain. You know, we feel the pain every time we fill up our gas tank or go to the grocery store. That's being felt in every sector of the economy. Consumers all across the country feel that, including in South Carolina. John, I want to shift gears because we're talking about the direction of the economy, and that's political. I mean, okay. Republican leadership sure. leads you know, the country in one direction, Democrat leadership leads the country in another direction. That's why we have this binary choice when we go to the poll. There, there are two elections in particular I want to talk about and get your take on. Uh, we had Robert Cahaley from Trafalgar with us yesterday talking about, you know, the, um, the House elections in the midterms, the Senate as well. It's pretty obvious to me that the math yeah. favors the Republicans in the House. I mean, I think you've really got to be a loyal I, and, and true-believing Democrat to think they're going to maintain. But the Senate's a different animal. I mean, the Senate's very, very, very close. It's tied now. Um, two races in particular I'm going to get your take on. Trump endorsed Dr. Oz, kind of an unusual candidate in Pennsylvania, as well as football hero um, Herschel Walker in Georgia. And right now, some of the early polling shows that Walker and Oz are having trouble. Um, what, yeah. what is your storyline there? Well, I, I think that you, you spelled it out pretty clearly. You know, Donald Trump has lots of talents. Uh, and, you know, politics is not uh, what he initially got into. His strong suit is business. And he has uh, essentially chosen two individuals who are not good politicians. And you have one individual, Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, uh, he is a carpetbagger in the classic definition of being a carpetbagger. That doesn't play well in pretty much every part of the country, and it's not playing well in Pennsylvania. Latest poll has him down by nine points there. Uh, he's not a good candidate, and I, I think that Republicans had an opportunity to choose someone who could hold on to the seat. Remember, it's a Republican who's retiring, Pat Toomey, in Pennsylvania, so it's a hold opportunity for Republicans. And as things stand right now, and there's a, you know three months to go, a little over three months to go until the midterms. I, I think that uh, Republicans are in very clear danger of losing that seat in Pennsylvania. Now, Georgia, let me go through that very quickly. 
Georgia is a different a case entirely. Everybody knows Herschel Walker. Uh, everybody, a hundred percent name ID. But here's another inst- uh, instance where you have a, a person who does not have any experience in politics. He's had difficulty literally in every interview that I've ever seen him do in terms of his answers to simple questions sometimes. And that just isn't going to play well. And when you're talking about a very close state like Georgia, we saw that in both of the Senate races, we saw it in the presidential race in 2020. Uh, it's it's not good. And here's a pickup opportunity for Republicans. And, and right now, as things stand today, I don't think they're going to be able to pick up that seat. Interesting analysis. John, uh, President Biden was diagnosed with COVID. Uh, we learned yesterday he's now negative of COVID. Um, where do we go from here? I mean, the Biden administration, I've, we, we've seen the president um, on video. We've not seen him live and in living color. Do we expect sooner than later to see him back out and about? Well, I saw him yesterday. He made the announcement in the Rose Garden to a, uh, a large number of staff that had gathered there that uh, he's tested negative twice for COVID. Uh, after he made those remarks, he, I saw him walk into the Oval Office. Uh, so he's no longer in isolation. Uh, now the White House tells me he will uh, start to hit the campaign trail, uh, gearing up for the midterm elections, uh, campaigning for individuals who want his support and want his help and want to be by his side. And that's not everybody, given the president's own low approval ratings. So it'll be interesting, interesting Ken, to see which states and which districts he goes to uh, during the course of the midterm election campaign season. Well explained. John, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Have a good day and good weekend. Uh, you too, Ken. Thanks again for having me on today. Talk to you next week for sure. Thank you very much. There's Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker. Great Television owns our um, uh, broadcasting associate, WMBF, uh, NBC affiliate in Myrtle Beach, as well as WIS, the NBC affiliate in Columbia, South Carolina, home of your fighting game gox. Sometimes hmm. fighting game gox. Women's basketball in particular. Real, <laughs> real, real fighting game cards in, in, in you had basketball. Not so much in our in some of the other men's major sports, but that's a story for yes. for another but day. Sport up. I want to go football. to something I heard yesterday, kind of interesting to me, and I kind of chuckle when I hear I mean, obviously these campaigns and parties have surrogates, they have spokespeople, they have, you know, you send somebody to CNN or send somebody to NBC or send somebody to Fox and they lie and get paid for it. I mean, that's kind of you know, it's not I mean you're talking about, you know, what is the source of what you believe to be true? Who's paying me? I mean, who's paying me? That, in essence, that's where American politics has really broken down to. Who's paying me to say what? Because I can say it as convincingly as you need me to say it. Um, if you're a corporate interest and you're trying to lobby for a bill, uh, do you send a lobbyist to Washington seeking the truth? Or do you send them to convince people that what you believe is is um, is true? And and I heard someone yesterday talking about the the Dr. Oz um, John Fetterman race. Fetterman's the current lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, endorsed Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has endorsed him. Um, he's kind of a um, really and truly he's a Trump like candidate. I mean, he kind of walks to the beat of his own drum. He wears hoodies. He's got a goatee. Um, you know, talks in a very brash and um, regular guy sort of way. Um, but someone was there talking about. Someone was on might have been Fox was talking about the midterms, and they're talking about the uh, the Pennsylvania Senate race, and they talked about how flawed Dr. Oz was. And now, they say he's down nine. He's not down nine. He's probably down three or four. It's going to be a closely, um, a hotly contested race, as we like to say, in politics, but it's not going to be a nine-point victory for Fetterman. 
Um, it's interesting that John just full full carpet bagger, carpet bagger, carpet bagger, carpet bagger. Ah, but he is from um, I think Philadelphia. Excuse me, he is from um, uh, uh, New York. But he's not he's not originally from Philadelphia, from Pennsylvania, but rather moved there. Where is he originally was it, from? Was it Delaware? Uh, no, it's not no. Delaware. I mean, I think they're accusing him of being. Um, from it might be New York. I don't know. It's one of the northeastern uh, liberal states, but they're making the accusation that he's a carpet bagger. I mean, we know he's he's, he's this family. I mean, he has some associate some ties to Turkey, and yeah, he was born in Cleveland, Ohio, raised in Wilmington, Delaware. Okay, Delaware. Maybe the um. So the guy from Delaware is running for a Senate seat, and I mean that's not unusual. I mean that happens yeah, he's a lot. Moved to Pennsylvania in 2020. Okay, moved to Pennsylvania to run for Senate. Uh, imagine that. And uh, so so they'll try to argue he's a carpet bagger. And that'll probably be a pretty decent argument to make. But but here's the point I'm trying to make. So Fetterman's surrogate, well, the Democrat surrogate, they're, they're not there specifically on behalf of Fetterman, but the Democrat surrogate says what a deeply flawed candidate Dr. Oz is. Agree. I mean, he's a flawed candidate. Every candidate has flaws. It's your job to expose those flaws. So the surrogate's own uh, Fox, and they're talking about the Pennsylvania Senate race, and he says, well, Dr. Oz, I mean, Trump endorsement was the, um, I mean, it was the gold stamp of approval in the Republican primary, but it's causing him trouble because he's such a deeply flawed candidate. Your candidate is in the hospital with a stroke. I mean, your candidate's not even on the campaign trail. And I thought it was odd, but because you got to be careful about having something flipped around on you. So Fetterman, we know this. Fetterman had some sort of heart issue, um, a stroke that led to some heart uh, problem. He was spent, I mean, I think he spent two or three weeks in the hospital. He's not back on the campaign trail. So when your candidate is is in the bed with heart issues or ailments or a stroke or some sort of other medical uh, disability, I'd be careful saying how flawed the other candidate is. I mean, I would just pounce on that. I mean, yeah, I'm flawed. Yeah, I've got some issues, but I'm not in the bed with my health in question. I mean, be careful calling me flawed when your candidate is in the bed with medical complications. Um, and I, some of these things are so easy for me because I guess I've just reared in that world. You know what I mean? And accustomed to having to, to answer things with some degree of political motivation. Herschel's um, issues are going to be interesting to me. Um, there are going to be a lot of people in Georgia who want to vote for Herschel. Can he convince them to? I mean, in essence, that, that to me, that's the argument in this entire. There are, ah, oh, my good land. How many people in Georgia respect, admire, and appreciate the football prowess and career of Herschel Walker? I mean, any fan of athletics knows who Herschel Walker is and holds him in high degree. There will be some that have that opinion of Walker as an athlete and football player, and they want to vote for Herschel. Can Herschel convince them to pull the trigger, to cast the ballot? That's going to be – I don't know about, much about Oz and, and Fetterman. I don't. I mean, I, I'll level with you that they're both kind of um, walk to the beat of their own drum candidates, Dr. Oz. I mean, Kahaley believes this. I don't think he'd mind me sharing this. Kahaley always believed that Dr. Oz would perform well against Republican uh, Republican-leaning, white-educated suburban females. Uh, why? He's does this. He's had this TV show. He's counseled people. He's um, he's helped people walk through the problems and despair of life as a, uh, I guess, a television psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, and and Robert believes they'll reward him for some of that. Um, maybe not loudly and proudly proclaim 
their support of Dr. Oz. Um, I think that's a 50-50 seat. I mean, I don't think Oz is behind nine. I don't care what the, the numbers are. And you heard Robert yesterday say, when I went down the road of, of, um, of Walker running about nine points behind Kemp, he stopped me right there and said, there's not any credible polling on this Senate race. Let me stop you right there. But that was his words. Let me stop you right there. There's not any credible polling on this Senate race. We will have polling. I found out yesterday, last night, we'll have polling by the end of this week on where the Walker uh, Warnock race is. And that is a flip. So the Republicans have the seat in Pennsylvania that's up for grabs. The Democrat has the seat in Georgia that's up for grabs. That's kind of unusual. You expect it to be just the uh, the, the opposite of that. But um, but I mean, I think Oz and Fetterman will be close. I think Walker and Warnock will be close. Um, somebody asked me yesterday, would you take a split on those two? Maybe, maybe. Um, I, I think that would be reasonable. Um, I mean, obviously, you'd like to win Pennsylvania and um, Georgia. But but the one good thing about this is the Republicans aren't playing defense in both. You know, the um, the Georgia seat is held by the Democrat. So if you do lose Pennsylvania, I'm not saying they will, but if you do, you need to pick one up in, in Georgia. And I think those two states, at the end of the day, will decide who controls uh, the Senate. I, I really believe that. I think Arizona's interesting. You know, Blake Masters is still to me. I mean, I've always said I thought J.D. Vance was the kind of the um, – the next iteration of where the party needs to go, maybe Blake Masters fits that bill. There's an interesting article. I told Rev this morning, New Statesman had an article about uh, 2005, maybe uh, 2006, a couple of years before Obama got elected. And it basically said, I've seen the future of the Republic, excuse me, the Democrat Party, and his name is Barack Obama. And they were, they were jabbed a little bit because of that. They've got an article this week in New Statesman, basically in arguing that I've seen the future of the Republican Party, and his name is J.D. Vance. And um, and uh, take it for what it's worth. I mean, the name of the magazine is the New Statesman. The name of the website is the New Statesman. And they pride themselves on going around trying to find who the next greatest thing in either party is going to be. They were right about Obama. I mean, they really were. They nailed Obama. He was the future of the Democrat Party, and I guess is still playing out um, <laughs> that way. And um, and Vance is becoming, I don't know, the rising star in what they're they, – they would argue this alt-right. I mean, that's what the new statesman argues. It's an alt-right political movement. And how are you I, feeling about Vance in his Senate race? Well, I think he's win. I mean, I think, I think J.D. Vance is going to be the senator from Ohio. And I'm telling you, if Trump decides to run, I'm just saying, you need somebody that relates to the Rust Belt. You need somebody that relates to the working class. Oh, really? I think Vance can take that chance. Yeah. I mean, if he wins that Senate seat mm-hmm. in Ohio, I think Vance could say yes if Trump were to reach out and say, um, would you be my running mate? I mean, I think that is the best chance or the best choice Trump could make today. Now, something could change. He could lose in Ohio. But if he wins that Senate seat in Ohio, I think Trump would be well served when he begins forming a committee to advise him on who to make as his VP. I think J.D. Vance needs to be at the absolute top of that list. Vance isn't his own brand yet. DeSantis is. I mean, DeSantis has cultivated this brand. I mean, you know, he's separate of Trump. He's he's not as big as Trump, but he's the next best thing, the next biggest thing in the Republican circle. Vance is a rising star, but he's not got to that point yet. And I think Trump making that decision, yeah. I mean, I think it's um, you wondered whether Pence was an America firster or not. You don't wonder whether J.D. Vance is, and I think he inspires another generation of these young 
America first Republicans to enthusiastically support a Trump agenda. And it offsets that age factor. You know, uh, if something were to happen to Trump, and J.D. Vance isn't, but you, know, I mean, you see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. There, there's a guy waiting in the wings. The guy that doesn't want that to happen is Ron DeSantis. <laughs> I'll assure you of that. Um, 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. So I am incredibly frustrated with Springsteen because I've broken my life down to Springsteen songs. I mean, every every lyric, every line, I believe, even before I was, well, he didn't write songs before I was born, but in my early, early youth, I still believe Springsteen was writing about me. Now it's dynamic scoring. Got to pay $4,000 to go see a C. There's a line in a Springsteen song where he says, Mr. The Day, The Lottery I Win. I ain't ever going to ride in no used car again. <laughs> so I'm thinking about a billion-dollar lottery. I mean, a billion, Rev and I have had these off-the-air kind of, what would you do with a billion bucks? I mean, if I had several million, I'd go to the beach. If I had a hundred, I mean, if I had $500 million after taxes, I'd probably go to Washington to be everybody's worst nightmare. Um, <laughs> Tanya, that'd, be, that'd be entertainment for you. I mean, uh, sure. I mean, that'd be, yeah, because I got a half billion dollars in cash sitting in the bank somewhere. I mean, it's unfathomable, that, that amount of money. But somebody someday will win a, a lottery in excess of a billion dollars. They'll get a one-time lump sum and then taxes. You'll probably stand up, end up with somewhere in the neighborhood, $400, $500 million. Um, that's a lot of money in South Carolina. That's even a lot of money in New York. And in New York, Tanya J. Powers is with us. So, Tanya J., the, the, the obvious question is, what would Tanya J. Powers do if she won you know, a, a lottery in excess of a billion dollars? But that's not your job. That's not why you're here. Um, but, but the mega millions jackpot is over $1 billion and another drawing will be what at 11 o'clock tomorrow night. Yes. 11 o'clock Eastern tomorrow night. And you know what? This is not even the biggest one we've had. This is the third biggest one we've had. If it stays what, what it is now, it'll be the third largest jackpot, uh, mega millions jackpot in the, in the drawings history. The, uh, and weirdly enough, the other two really big ones have been in the last few years. One of the second largest one was last year. Um, right now we're at $1.02 billion. Um, that's about, I think the cash payout of that, if you take the cash option, is $602.5 million. Um, the largest one was in 2018 for $1.5 with a B. And then the second largest one was $1.05 billion, which was in January of last year. Uh, so this, you know, obviously between now and the drawing time tomorrow night, the $1.02 billion could be, you know, it could be pushing that one and a half billion uh, if if some of these estimates are correct because you know there's a, a lot of buzz and a lot of people are going to go out and get tickets even folks who you know may not normally even get a lottery ticket might say yeah okay that's that's worth a try okay I'm a, I'm a confessing Baptist you ready I told Dave Baker yesterday I said okay. I've never bought a lottery ticket in my life because um, I don't want to be a hypocrite I mean I just think we, we legalize gambling in South Carolina I don't think it's good for society in general. But I did ask him, hey, how do you buy those mega how do you buy those those mega million? So I'm confessing that I would be one of the ones that normally would have very little interest, but all of a sudden a billion dollars gets your attention. <laughs> Makes it more interesting. But, but Tanya, isn't that normal? I mean, wouldn't you wouldn't you argue that there are more and more people like me that get a little bit uh, infatuated with the the bill the chance to win a billion dollars and, and not earn it? Sure. I mean, who wouldn't want to, you know, pay a couple of bucks for a lottery ticket and then be set for life? Um, And weirdly enough, that largest one I was talking about, the one and a half billion dollars, that ticket was sold in South Carolina. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's 
history could repeat itself. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Right. Okay, I'll make a deal with you. Um, if okay. one day I go missing and, and you, in your in your travels and travails, you say, where is that Ken R that we used to talk to in South Carolina every now and then? Th- th- that'll be your notification that I, because nobody else will know. I mean, I, I, I will assure you, nobody would ever know if I won that sort of money because I, I just hate to be bothered that much. And and if and if we one day look on our rundown list and for a week or two or three don't see Tanya J. Powers, we're going to make the assumption that you won the lottery. Fair enough? <laughs> I, fair enough. And, and I'll go a step further. If you or any of your listeners who might win, I, just to put it out there, I would really love the the only the first and only exclusive interview you give um, about what it's like <laughs> to just be able to tell everybody that you are no longer interested in whatever they're talking about. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, there's, Fair there's enough. a reporter always <laughs> working, always yeah, always looking for the story. No, no question about. It. Thank Absolutely. you, Tanya. Thank you. Have a good day. You're welcome. That's kind of an interesting. What would you do? I mean, we, we pondered on on things we are curious about by you know what is the source of what you believe to be true. Um, what would you do? I mean, once again, th- there's a number that you go to the beach, right? I mean, th- there's a number sure. that, that you win or you make or you sell something or whatever. I mean, if, if the stars align and you inherit wealth or you make a lot of money, there's a number of which you say, man, I'm going to the beach. And I say that figuratively, obviously. Everybody doesn't want to go to the beach. Some want to go to the mountains or go to the lake or go wherever it is you choose to go and do what you want to do. But I think that number, I mean, it's, it's, it's a different number for different people. I mean, if you had $10 million, you go to the beach. If you had $20 million, $5 million, whatever that number, that number is. But the, the number billion, I mean, Tanya said, I mean, it'll probably be $1.2 billion by the time we draw tomorrow night because ticket sales begin to accelerate because people like me who have never bought a lot, I've never bought a lottery ticket in my life. Um, but I did ask Rev yesterday, yeah. and he actually showed me his ticket. And I said, well, how do you do it? What do you want to do Because I want to go tonight. I you know, never know. I mean, you never right. So what are you going to win it? Um, well, somebody said, you know, your chances are only one in 400 million. I'm going to like, so my chances are as good as everybody else's. That's <laughs> right. Everybody else's and chances the way I are one in 400 million. Is, is you're buying, you know, a little bit of time to kind of dream and think about, well, what would I do? But it's, it's not hard to dream. Well, it is hard to dream about 10 million. But, I mean, people have sold businesses for $10 million. I mean, people have made $10 million, and, and people are able to live life as they choose to live life. But what if you ended up cash, after taxes, a half billion dollars? I mean, what do you do? Where do you go? I mean, you've got a lottery ticket in your hand that is worth, and it's been validated, it's been confirmed that it's right, it's winning, it's real. You win a half billion dollars. Somebody's going to give you a check that doesn't bounce for $500 million. What do you do where do you go? Um, I mean, I've, I've told you before, and I'll say it again. Nobody would ever know it. I mean, I, I can assure you with that. I, I would want to be anonymous. I'd hire me a lawyer to make sure. And I'd, I'd tell him. I'd tell him up front. If, if anybody ever says that they heard I won the lottery, I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to make you find some sort of non-disclosure uh, agreement that, that allows me to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law because once again rev that's not five or six or eight or ten or twelve million dollars that's a half billion dollars in liquidity i mean that puts you in the one millionth of one percent who has a half billion dollars in liquid i mean i doubt elon musk i mean he's had to sell things to buy you know to make the offer on twitter who has who in the world i mean so so you don't think the richest person in the world has 500 million cash i would imagine there are a few but but very few i mean in their personal estate i mean berkshire hathaway's famous for having an enormous amount of cash on the sideline so they can buy when the buying's right yeah. but but no individually and personally 
No, I think there are a handful. I mean, probably a Saudi prince, uh, maybe a drug dealer, you know, like Pablo Escobar or somebody like that. But no, half a billion dollars in liquid in the bank, you would be in the most rare of rarest air uh, imaginable. And we don't have time to take this call, uh, do we? Got a couple of calls? Um, uh, no, no. We just, well, I don't want to short anybody of their time. But yeah, what would you do if you somebody gave you a check for half a billion dollars? Who is the first person you go see? Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. If you're not careful, this if I won the lottery conversation get away from you. I mean, Rev and I are buying things oh, and, yeah. and giving things and donating things and, and going to concerts. Out. And yeah, you know, we've already got it figured out. It's easy to, I mean, to become a little bit intoxicated by what if I won? I mean, it's different. I mean, I, I know people that have sold businesses for $10 million and, and they do whatever they want to do. And, and, and God bless them. I mean, they, they call lightning in a bottle. They worked hard. They, they were successful and, you know, and they ended up on the good side of finance. But a half billion dollars in liquidity. I mean, if, if somebody from the, 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 the Lottery Commission of America gave you a check for half a billion dollars, what is your first move? That's just kind of an interesting, uh, wow. I can tell you this. I wouldn't worry about what the Springsteen tickets cost anymore. <laughs> That's one thing short term. You know, really, I can say. that kind of money, you could hire him to come play a concert wherever but you But would want. you? Is it prudent? Do you, I mean, do you still owe a, a certain, I mean, you got, there's a certain degree of human dignity that we all try to live our lives under, right? I mean, you do, I do, we all do. Everybody tries to answer to themselves. You look in the mirror every morning. You know what you see better than I do. I know what I see better than you do. I know what's in there. I know what I wish was in there. I know what I don't like being in there. And I think if you end up with that money, you've got to figure out a way to maintain some sense of human dignity. You can't stop being who you are. You said, is that prudent? Would you ever be not prudent. Sure. Absolutely. I would. I mean, I would do stupid things, but I wouldn't live a stupid life. There's a better way to say it. I would absolutely, I do stupid things now. I mean, I spend money and go, why did you do? I mean, how stupid is that? And, and rest assured, I don't have a half billion dollars in cash, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I, I would be irresponsible at times, but I would still try to hold on to who I am and, and what I believe in. Cause I think God ultimately, I don't care if we got a half billion or $5, you'll answer to God one day. And that human dignity and that compassion for fellow man uh, and that, that you know, did, did I did I honor God or not? And I think if, you know, if you believe winning $500 million makes you uh, exempt from honoring God, you got another story coming your way. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. You're on. But the Republicans are beyond pathetic. And probably over half the country is beyond pathetic. How in the hell... Did you lose any election after what's gone on the past two years? You go, especially at the, at the at the national level, you just laid out everything that your opponent voted for as a result of it. Everything from I mean, everything from the way they handled COVID. I mean, you look everything that is the things that have gone wrong these past two years, and you can't get your daggone constituents in your state to say. I think we might want to change the course we're going at instead of voting for the same idiot that put us here. Only the Republicans can figure out a way to screw that up. They make me sick to my stomach. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. that that's kind of a, um, I'll give you a take here. Um, Trump is a, Trump is a polarizing political figure. Let's go to the dominant narrative, dominant data theory. Um, if you look at the data, as Carl said, the truth, 
I mean, what I what not what I believe to be true, what I know to be true. I know that gas was a dollar seventy nine or eighty a gallon when Trump was president. I know the economy was growing. I, I know that people are optimistic about the future. I understand that people didn't like him. What does that matter? I mean, I've I preached over and over and over again about the likability factor. Do I know you? Do I like you? Those are the two most important prerequisites to win an election. I put my name on the ballot eight times. I've never lost. I've never been the best prepared candidate. Um, there was a time I was probably the best funded candidate in my in my lieutenant governor's race. I was as funded or as well funded. I don't know if I was better funded, but I was as well funded as my opponents. Uh, but the one thing that, that polling always showed, I was a fairly likable guy. I mean, I think we've done okay on the radio because I can fake humility with the best of them. And, and I, you know, we, we come across, you and I come across as the guy next door. That's what we are. It's easy mm-hmm. to come across something that you really you really are. Um, but, but let's go to the likability. So, so the biggest complaint I hear with Trump or about Trump, and I'm going to go to Breeze's point here, um, do I like the president? Who gives a rat's ass if you like the president or not? You need to like your wife. You need to like your kids. You need to like your best friend. You need to like the place you go eat lunch. You need to like the, the grocery store of which you buy your groceries. Why does it matter? I mean, who do you think you are? in deciding whether to vote for a president because you don't like him or not. You've certainly got that right. And, 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 you know, polling evidence shows clearly that is a big deal. You know, likability is the primary feature yeah, I mean, if you of like someone him, who wins be, elections. That's, that's who you're going to vote for. But the general. only question to ask is, do, do I believe he does or could do a good job or she does or could do a good job? Is that person that is asking me for their vote someone who I believe would contribute to the net negativity of the country or the net positivity. In other words, is that vote I'm casting going to make America a better or worse place? And it's hard to convince me that those who didn't like Trump but voted for Biden were voting because they believed he was going to do a better job. We got to get over ourselves on this. I mean, we really and truly, we have to get over. I'm tired of Republicans saying, man, I just don't like Trump. Screw you. Who cares if you don't like Trump? He's not your your husband. He's not your your grandfather. He's not your business partner. He's the president of the United States, and he did a really good job at managing the nation's affairs. So so I'm talking out both sides of my mouth, and I'll admit it. The likability factor has been the dominant force of why people win or not elections. Once again, I am not highly educated. I'm not highly prepared. I'm not highly um, astute. I'm not highly intelligent. But I was fairly likable, and I was successful at getting people to vote for me. But but the reason we need to start voting for political leadership, do we believe they can do the job or not? Hey, and if I'll you put Joe this. Biden— I'll admit this, and I've said it before. I used to kind of like Joe Biden. I and mean, when he was a senator, and this is before he you know was Barack Obama's running mate, but when he was a senator, I always kind of liked him. But you why saw does him from it, afar. I understand what you're saying, and, and, and you're proving my point. Right. Um, why does it matter whether you like somebody or not? I mean, once again, you're not going to eat lunch with Donald Trump or Joe Biden. You're not going on a vacation with Donald Trump or Joe Biden. we got to get over ourselves. It doesn't matter whether I like the president or not. Do I believe he is going to make the country better, or do I believe he is not? Do I believe she is going to make the country better, or do I believe she is not? And I would I would challenge any Republican listening to my voice who did not vote for Donald Trump, and that includes you, you college-educated suburban females, you. I mean, you're the ones that bailed. You're the ones that bailed, and the reason you bailed 
It's simple. You didn't like the guy. You didn't like his style. You didn't like his, his bombast. You didn't like his narcissism. Well, how do you like not having funding of police? How do you like $4 a gallon gasoline? How do you like a recession? How do you, how do you like, you know, raising interest rates to basically um, constrain demand? I mean, think about it. I mean, policy historically has been, I mean, it's not been to reduce demand. I mean, policy has been to cut taxes, you know, to increase um, uh, increased production, increased consumption. I mean, that's what the American economy is about. But we get so hung up on what we like or not. And I'm not voting for Trump because I don't like him. I mean, you got to get it. That's your problem, not Trump's. I mean, I'm being serious. I mean, that's your problem. There are things about Trump I don't like. There are things about, you know, Ronald Reagan I didn't like. There are things about my wife I don't like. There are things she doesn't like about me. I mean, we all live in this world where we have these personal persuasions and opinions and beliefs, but we've got to stop that. Do I like the president or not? Who cares? Who cares? Does he do a good job or does he not? And the Republicans, once again, once again, you college-educated suburban females decided that you didn't like Trump so much that you would give Biden a chance Look at what we've got. Look at what you've done. I didn't do it. You did it. And we know the 18 counties that bailed. We know the constituent group that bailed. And the majority of those folks will tell you in exit polling, why did you not vote for Trump when you historically have voted for Republican presidents? I didn't like the guy. I didn't like his style. I didn't like his bombast. Did he do a good job or did he not? That's why you elect. I mean, it's different. You're not selecting a business partner, right? You're not electing a, a spouse. You're not electing a kid. That There has to be a likability in those relationships we have in our lives every day. How many of you will ever talk? I mean, as far as I know, I'm the only person that has talked to Donald Trump. You know what? I, I mean, does Trump like me? I don't have a clue. Do I like Trump? Doesn't matter. Did he do a good job? Yes. He did an exceptional job as president of the United States, despite despite his unfavorables and the fact that a large share of the nation did not like him. To me, that's not Trump's problem. That's our problem as a nation of people who I just put more faith in our opinion or put more credence in our opinion than we should. He, uh, he did like your Southern accent. He well, mentioned he did. that. You know, but I mean, the first in truthfulness, the he's the guy with the accent. <laughs> I mean, he's talking to a, a, a core, a constituent of listeners. What are you shaking your head at, Freehold? That's fake news. Well, I mean, he's, he's from Queens. But a guy from Queens doesn't have an accent. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Here is JT in Florence. Morning, JT. Hey, guys. How are you? Hey, JT. Uh, so, Ken, to your point, I there's a few people I have had do stuff for me at, at different times. Uh, plumbing and electrical work and stuff like that, even up to a doctor that when people are like, hey, I need this kind of doctor. So I generally start with this, and it's it's funny how people's reaction is. I say, listen, okay, here's here's the plumber I use. Just want you to know he's he's pretty direct. He uses some salty language, but he'll show up on time. He'll give you a, a fair, fair price probably beat just about anybody else you've had quoted. Uh, he will do the job, and then when he leaves, it, it won't look like he's been there. And this doctor, he, his bedside manner's pretty bad. Like, he, he's very, very direct. He 
calls it like he sees it. He's not going to make you feel very good, but he's the doctor that all the other doctors go to. You know what their reaction always is? I can imagine. Give me the information. Like, <laughs> they don't seem to care when it's something that really impacts them personally and that they need done well. They don't seem to care what your what your personality is like. They seem to care more about the job. So where is the, why is there a disconnect between the idea of the person I put in that office really impacts my life heavily? So why, why do you believe, believe that is, JT? Why, what, what is your theory? I mean, you, you, you're agreeing with me, but, but why do you believe that, that we allow that likability factor to be such an important part of us voting for political or governmental leadership? I honestly don't know. That's why I was asking. Like, yeah, I, and, I, I, like, like, do you believe that people um, can't uh, – do you believe that people can't tie in their minds um, – the, the connection between what the president does and says impacts me. Uh, do you think they believe the president is divorced from, um, you know, the actual impact of the economy? Uh, I, I mean, what do you think? Like, I, I guess maybe that's it. They yeah. just don't make the connection or they don't care enough to make the connection. I don't, that's the only thing I can come up with. Cause if otherwise I've never had a person tell me somebody's bedside manner as a doctor is more important than their competence. Never. Never. Interesting. Thank you, JT. That's kind of an interesting analogy. In our in our different walks of life, when we need an expert, I mean, we don't care whether we like him or not. I mean, it's good to like the guy. I mean, if, if you got a great doctor and he has good bedside manners, I mean, isn't that good? Uh, I mean, you know, I hear people say this. I mean, JT's right. I hear people say his bedside manners suck. I mean, he's a good doctor, but his bedside manners suck. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to make him for him to make me feel better, except physically. You know, I've got an ailment. I've got a disease. I've got a virus. I've got a, a broken arm. I need that fixed. I need the best doctor in the world to fix my broken arm or my child's broken arm. I'll give you an example. My, my son's leg, when he had all these issues with his leg. Um, is he nice or not? No, I mean, I never asked that. Does he know what he's doing or not? I mean, is he, is he accomplished? Is he, is he world-renowned? Is he, is he competent? I mean, is he, is he proficient at whatever it is we're asking to do? And, and it may be this, JT, talking to JT, he's not there anymore. It, it may be this. We all agree that politics is enormously squishy. There is no real metric or measure. I mean, we're, we're hearing an administration now saying, well, I mean, what you guys have always said is a recession, really a recession. <laughs> And a certain percentage of Americans believe it well, because they part, feel a certain way. They, they want to believe that the Biden administration is not failing. Is it, par- is it partly that, you know, it kind of seems like it's a show. It's a production. I mean, we have the, the fake set for the White House across the street where the president goes and does things for whatever reason. Don't know why, but he does. Um, but it's, in that case, it's just a show. It's just something we're watching on TV. Okay, let me ask you this. To that point, how do we enforce competency and the ability to do the job at the presidential level. I mean, you would agree that the majority of presidential campaigns are based on making that candidate likable, making him relatable. Yeah. George W. Bush has very little in common with the average American, but he got in a Ford truck wearing a Carhartt jacket. He became relatable. It made him likable. Why is he likable? Because he got, I mean, I can relate to that. I can relate to a Ford truck and a, and a Carhartt jacket. And all of a sudden, George W. Bush becomes a, a legitimate candidate because you've made him a little more likable. Now, if we're, if we're hiring somebody to run a company, let, let's say we're hiring somebody to run the, the 100 biggest company in the world. How important is likability? I mean, it's very, I mean, it, to, to me, it's way down the scale. Is he smart? Is he diligent? Is he a hard worker? 
Is he somebody who does what he says he's going to do? Does he show up every day ready to do the job? It's just very interesting to me. And I heard this yesterday on another show. I'm thinking about another. Uh, it wasn't this point, but th they were talking about the likability. Biden is still more likable. That's what it was. Someone was arguing that despite Biden's shortcomings, he's still more likable than Trump. And Trump's going to have trouble winning because he can't get enough people to like him. Who cares? I mean, look at where we were. And where we are, how do you argue that likability matters at all when we're heading into a recession? When when Trump, I mean, look, and I'm not defending everything Trump does. Carl gets mad with me because I beat up on Trump on some of these accounts. I think Trump could make himself a little more likable if he would be a little more humble. But but that's not who he is. But but the reason we vote for an American president should not be whether we like the person or not, but rather do we believe this person is net negative or net positive to the way we run the country. That is, to me, Rev, and, I, and I'll be a little bit, um, I'll be aggressive here. I think that's your obligation. I think you're, you're in dereliction of your duty when you vote for someone or not because you like them or not. I think you're irresponsible in casting that ballot because you don't like someone. You knew damn well Trump could run the country better than Biden. And you still voted for Biden because you didn't like Trump. That's your problem. And you've got to get over um, that hang up. And, uh, and when Trump runs again, guess what? He's not going to be real likable again. But, but it's almost like the people that don't like Trump, they need an excuse. So the excuse is, well, he won't let January 6th. I mean, he won't let um, the 2020 presidential election go. No, the core of your animus is you don't like the guy. That's your problem. Who cares? Whether you like the president, you have a job, a responsibility to elect the person that you believe can effectively and efficiently govern this nation's affairs. And, and to me, it has never been as big a no-brainer as it was with Biden and Trump on the uh, ticket. But so many of us let our feelings get in the way and decided, I don't like that guy. I don't, you know, whether we did 2020, I mean, the reason you didn't vote for Trump, admit it, you don't like the guy. Take a break. Back in a minute. We're waiting at 830. The Commerce Department, I think, releases their numbers. Uh, there will be an estimate. I mean, the estimate will be revised. I think the um, we talked earlier this week, Rev, the estimate in the first quarter was plus 0.2 GDP growth. It ended up being revised to, to minus 1.6. I don't know how many hundreds of billions of dollars of economic activity big miss. you have to miss. Yeah, to, to, to miss that bad. But anyway, um, we'll see the preliminary number here this morning at some point in time. Uh, the administration knows it's going to be bad. That's why they've tried to redefine what a recession is. I want to shift gears and go. Uh, we talked a lot about conservatism and America first and what it means. I think there is a, a an obvious commitment we have to make to the armed services. I mean, no matter how conservative you are, you have to agree that our founders made it pretty clear that providing for a national defense was something that was of paramount significance. Um, I've read a lot recently about the the U.S. military not being able to find recruits, um, drug use, obesity, um, a lot of other cr criminal charges. There are a lot of reasons that we're having a, a problem in military recruiting, um, and the armed forces are experiencing what I'd call deficits in enlistment year after year, and this is going to be problematic. 
I mean, we, we can agree or disagree whether we need to be in Ukraine or, or how involved we need to be there. But, but in all honesty, we need to be fully equipped to defend our country's safety and security. Republicans and Democrats have to, with clarity, understand the significance of that. Somebody knows a lot more about that than I do. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army, Chair of the American Defense International, uh, was actually in charge of the Desert Storm Mobilization for Reservists. Van Hip is with us. Van, good morning. How are you? Good morning, and, and and from South Carolina. It's always good to talk. To I folks, knew that. I remember our paths. PD. Yeah, our paths crossed a good bit when I was um when I was running for office right. and, and begging for everyone's everyone's support, yours included. Van, am I overstating the problem? Um, how dramatic? How drastic? How behind the eight ball are we in finding uh, people who have committed or will commit to join the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines? big problem first of all look at that recruiting pool that we that, that, that we go to of 18 to 24 year olds only 25 percent are even eligible to join today's military either they can't pass the pt test and the couch potatoes or they they can't pass the mental aptitude test hold that thought of that 25 percent only nine percent say they would even consider joining the military and i think it goes back to what you said people need to remember why do we have a federal, uh, a federal government. The states came together, and this is in our Constitution, to, to, to provide for the common defense of the American people. That's why we have a federal government. And while we have a military, and while we have an army, it's in the Army's mission statement, to deploy, fight, and win our nation's wars. We need to get back to that. That's the reason. And i got to tell you, I think probably the, the, the variety of factors here, but I think the biggest problem, what, what has led to this more than anything else, is our education system has failed us, and education is a national security issue. The Woodrow Wilson Foundation did a study. 40,000 Americans, they gave them the uh, basic citizenship test. Only one state had it, uh, 50% or more of its people who could even pass the thing. Reagan was right. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Van, having said that, what is the correction? I mean, what what do we need to do? I mean, I don't run the Department of Education. I don't run, you know, the Opioid Research Center. I mean, what can we as the general public do to contribute and create better outcomes? Start uh, with uh, from education uh, standpoint and insisting that our young people be taught American history and civics like they used to in our schools and understand what it means to be an American and what our forefathers went through to give us the freedoms we have today. Uh, one thing I would do, a lot of this is workforce-driven. So look at small businesses that are having a tough time recruiting right now people they need for their, you know, you know, for their business from this labor force. Why don't we have incentives? China. China is kicking our butt 24-7 on cybersecurity. Young people could go into the military, uh, uh, maybe with cybersecurity scholarships, learn cybersecurity, and they would also have a great uh, uh, skill to take to the workforce that need cybersecurity experts. Do things like that. We've got to be creative like that to attract the young people of today. Uh, one thing I do think that they've done in the last week or so that, that is a good decision is look at these kids who don't want that do want to be in there, but for whatever reason they can't pass the PT test or they can't pass the mental aptitude test. They're starting this thing right down the road at, at, at Fort Jackson called pre-basic training, where they're going to for 90 days. They're going to do everything they can to get them where they can pass the PT test or be able to pass the mental aptitude test. 
I think we'll be able to close some of this recruiting gap with that. So I think that that is a good step. I'm going to step on some of the toes of my friends in higher education, but I think we've done a lousy job at directing young people into certain uh, walks of life, careers, military included. It seems to me that that K through 12 and society in general has declared that four-year degrees are the success, to, uh, the pathway to success. And if you don't go that way, you're going to be a, an enormous failure. Um, that's just not the case. How can uh, we change the model? And once again, I know I'm stepping on toes in our education because they got a model built upon so many students enrolling and having so much debt and and paying so much tuition. But but I just think we've got to address the realities of every kid. Um, not go into a four-year institution to get a degree in philosophy or Greek literature, Shakespearean theater, but but instead pursuing a military career that can be very lucrative and prepare you for work after you get out of the military. Is that is that a fair complaint that I have about the educational system in America almost demanding of kids? And I'm talking about the proficient kids to, that that life is a failure unless you go to a four-year institution. No, you're right, and I think I think parents have to insist on that. And 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 look, if they want to go, I've talked to many who've said, you know, I wasn't ready for college. The military, I, the things I learned in the military to give me the discipline and things I needed and all that helped me uh, later on to go to college. So that college is still an option. But you know what? Yeah, you don't have to go to college to 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 to, to be successful. Look at Harry Truman. He did okay. He never went to college. Well explained. Van, thank you for your time. Good to talk to you, and good luck in your future endeavors, sir. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you very much. Van Hip. Yeah, Van was the guy that I crossed paths with when I was running for lieutenant governor. I'm very involved in the American military. Spends a lot of time in Washington on behalf of um, of the American military. 843-661. I just thought that was an interesting uh, – I think we all have a genuine interest in how prepared our armed services are. We do an honor event every Friday morning. Uh, we try to make it a part of our – um, I know the gratitude we express here on our on our show, and we've always argued from a conservative point of view, you know, a Republican perspective more times than not. But but I do think that that we should all be alarmed and concerned about. I mean, I've read an article, tried to find it when Van was on the phone. I read read one recently, might have been the Wall Street Journal, might have been ah, might have been the Boston Globe for some stupid reason. I was reading about Larry Bird, and I, I don't know why. I mean, something <laughs> How happened you end up there. I don't have any idea. Uh, something about the Celtics and some record, and I. I don't think that's right. So I went to Boston Globe. They had an article. Uh, anyway, they, they had also had an article about the American military. And, I mean, it's slim pickings. I mean, when you look at the number of young people who can pass a criminal background check, pass a drug test, and and pass the physical fitness test, it, it really thins the herd. We are, I mean, we talk a lot about the major problems facing America. The one thing that offends a lot of people, and we don't want to talk about it because it gets personal, if you're not careful, obesity. I mean, we, we've got a we've got a major problem in this country with obesity. Childhood and youth obesity is on the uh, on the decline, and and we've got to get our arms around. And you know, I've I've graphed it and charted. It. I'm funny about the way I like to overlay this with that high fructose corn syrup and obesity almost track in the exact same trajectory. The amount of high fructose corn syrup that Americans consume, with a percentage of Americans who have become obese, is almost in the same uh, graph or chart line. Let's go to the phone. Here is Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. I tell you, uh, Ken, uh, you've been kind of hard on those uh, people that are uh, Shakespearean theater people. I I really think you probably need more people that could read at the level where they could uh, read Shakespeare. I think reading Shakespeare and, 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 you know, waxing nostalgically about Shakespeare is good. I think to try and build a career 
on uh you know on on the I don't the the understanding. Well, well, I mean, well, I, it's just rubbish. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think you're absolutely right there. You might as well buy a lottery ticket. But uh, the uh, the situation is, I think uh, the situation we we like this person. I think you're absolutely right. If you, if you're looking for a surgeon, I want a I want I want a surgeon that's maybe obsessive compulsive, a perfectionist, and I don't care if he has Asperger's syndrome or not. Can he do the job? That's what I'm concerned with. Same thing with a pilot of an aircraft I happen to be riding in. I want a guy that can land it and take it off proficiently and safely. But uh, this this kind of high school thing, a lot of people go through high school and they never really get out of it. They say, you know, you're not electing the the prom queen. You're not uh, you're not electing the you know. Mr. Popularity, you got you got to elect somebody that can drive the boat and uh, keep the ship of state afloat. And we've got the the, the captain from the Titanic is going to run run us right into the iceberg every time, you know. And I I don't understand why you can't get people to see the seriousness of this because it's going to people are going to lose their lives and probably already have lost their lives over the incompetence of this group we have leading us now. Well, explain. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the call. You know, Rev said something during the last break. Hey, uh, real quick, uh, GDP report came out, or the uh, the quarterly report, minus nine. I mean, that that's the Point growth nine. number. I'm excuse me, minus nine. Wow. Um, <laughs> it may end up that. But it's in, oh. anyway, it's 0.9 negative GDP growth. So technically and historically, we are officially in a recession. Um, it's kind of interesting, all the Wall Street gurus, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, we, we're probably not going to go into a recession. We've been in a recession. The majority of people who live on Main Street and live in the real world, you know, don't work on Wall Street, don't don't live in Washington, don't live in some of these neighboring counties, what I call the collar counties of D.C. We have known for a pretty good while that a recession was more than likely. When you take that much money out of the economy, and by that I mean discretionary income, and invest or, or force those people to buy gas and and uh, food and fuel, which is a you know something you got to have. It's going to lead to an economic decline, and that's where we are today. Now, now it's interesting what the Fed is doing. So yesterday, the Fed raises rates, 0.75 basis, 75 basis points, 0.75 of one percent. Um, so so basically, the Fed is admitting that they're Keynesian. I mean, they really are. That they're admitting that the way to salvage a soft landing. It's not going to happen, but that's their language, not mine, is to reduce demand. I mean, you know, historically, Republicans have believed, I wrote these down, um, lower taxes, responsible spending, strong currency, minimal regulations. I mean, that's some of the things we believe in lead to better economic outcomes. There's a little silver lining here, and it's hard to find one right now, but I'll give you one. This does remind me of 1976 and Jimmy Carter, 1977, 78 the Carter malaise. I mean, he self-professed. You know, there was a malaise in the country because we we tend to find our soul when we when we when we realize that that someone can screw it up this bad. I mean, there is there is a level of incompetence that that will rear its head even where metrics and measures don't count. You asked earlier about you know why about liking the president, not liking the president, and you said something interesting. You hardly ever do, but you did. You said <laughs> what was it this time? It's a little bit like theater. It's a little bit like a movie. It's a little bit like a television sitcom. We don't really believe it's real anymore. So if you don't believe it's real, why not vote for the guy you like? 
I mean, if I'm going to a movie and I know it's not real, there's certain actors I like better than others. I'm a Springsteen guy. You're a McCartney guy. Why? You like McCartney better. I like Springsteen better. I know they don't sing about anything real. I mean, I know they're there to entertain. So maybe we've looked at the presidency as an entertainer. And if I want somebody to entertain me, I might as well want somebody I like to entertain me. I'm going to the Springsteen concert. Rev's going to the McCartney concert. But there's nothing at stake here. Yeah, but now we're finding out what is at stake. You're dealing in real issues. You're dealing with real substance. It doesn't make a rat's rear end how good the McCartney concert is or how good the Springsteen concert is at the end of the day. But it, it matters enormously to all of our lives who the president of the United States puts in charge of government who the administration heads are, who the department heads are, who are the ranking bureaucrats, how do the policies go, how does he lobby the government, how does he log- lobby Congress to do X, Y, or Z. These have enormous consequence. So the, the silver lining is this. Every now and then we need to be reminded that, that no part of uh, our existence can escape completely metrics and measures. At some point in time, a fraud will be revealed and, and incompetence will rear its head. And, and Carter showed that he was just not competent enough to run the economy. Good man, taught Sunday school forever, probably still does. Built a lot of houses, habitats, you remember. Nobody's accusing Jimmy Carter of being a bad man. I mean, I don't think Carter was anywhere near as, as corrupt as Biden is. I think corrupt's, uh, Biden's not only corrupt and incompetent, he's dangerous. I mean, I don't think Carter was a corrupt man. I think he was incompetent. I think he was over his head. But, but he went on to do good things. I mean, I think Habitat for Humanity and building houses and uh, teaching Sunday school, all those are honorable things to involve your or dedicate your life to. But, but I think the silver lining is this, that there, there's a group of people out there who, who, who agree that Biden would be less dangerous than Trump. And I think we're re- realizing now, wow, I mean, how did I get there? I don't have any idea, but you did. And here we are. Technically, uh, within two years of a president, we're in a recession. At that point, nine negative GDP growth will probably re- be revised in a month to p- negative 1.7. I mean, that's probably where it'll end up, negative 1.7. Mm-hmm. They always revise, and they never revise to the upside. It's always the latter revision is on. Um, so negative, it was with, with kicking and screaming that they put that point nine negative GDP growth. So technically... This is the first show we've done in the Biden administration in a recession. Back in a minute. Damn, it's raining every weekend. I mean, it does seem like we're on one of those rotations. It's, it's summertime just, in South Carolina. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't do it during the week. It's only on the weekends. It seems like every Saturday there's a good chance of rain. Thursday, no rain. Wednesday, no rain. I don't have anything to do Wednesday and Thursday. <laughs> give me some rain on Wednesday and Thursday when I don't have anything to do, but give me a good Saturday. Don't these weather or give people, me that winning lottery ticket. I'll put up with rain on Saturday if you give me that. Don't, don't, don't these weather people know what your weekend yeah, plans sure, are? They should. Yeah. If they don't, we're big deals here on the radio. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Mark in Branchville listening to WTQS in Orangeburg this morning. Hey, Mark. Doing well, man. Ken, is always a good show. Thank you all for doing what you all do. But uh, I got a few things. You talk about winning the lottery. You know what James Gregory said? You know, he said if he won the lottery, he'd get him a two-story double-wide. That's for people with real money. <laughs> <laughs> good deal. Good deal. But, uh, but uh, the other thing about it is, you know, the way people vote, you know, you're talking about liking somebody. It's kind of like back in back in high school and you go through that and, you know, the, the most popular cheerleader gets to be the president of the class. Everything's fine. And she's a good girl. But when it comes to financing, you probably needed the guy that had the paper out, you know, doing, you know, being the president, taking care of the money. You know what I mean? Sure. Oh. Uh, but um, 
But I'd like to say I think one of our problems, a lot of us, is, is the people voting don't understand. You're talking about um, just like living with, with, with who you're talking, who, who you like somebody. But I remember the sign Jack Robinson, what did the owner say? He said, I'm my heads for my, my heads for my business and my heart for my family. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of people try to vote with their heart, not their head. And I think a lot of them don't think that the government, it was like you get free money. Well, you know, it didn't cost anybody. Well, no, it's your money that you get that somebody else is getting. It is not free. Well, uh, explain. Anyway, no, no, no free lunch. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate the compliments on the show. Thank you for listening Um, in Branchfield. Got a good listener over in uh, in Branchfield. Real quick, let's go to the phone, then we'll take our, our, um, our top of the hour break. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Hey, at least I heard this morning we're not in a famine. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. I actually wrote that down this morning. Hey, the vaccine doesn't turn you into Spider-Man, and we're not in a famine, so there's reason to be optimistic. Yeah, no kidding. The bad thing that the gentleman you were talking to about the troops, they're, they're kicking out 60,000 because they won't take the shots that don't work. Now, does that make any sense to anybody? They're they're drawing down our strategic reserve petroleum in case of a war. Does that make any sense to anybody? They're getting ready to spend seven hundred billion dollars and raise taxes by almost a trillion in a recession. Does that make sense for anybody? None at all. Joe Hardbreak, top of the hour. You can hang on or we'll be back on the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number, hour number four on this Thursday morning. Um, well, I wanna, and I mean this sincerely. I want to thank you because you folks allow me to do a show that is not always in the typical fashion. And by that, I mean how many shows this morning uh, we're going to be about the recession. I mean, it was impending. We knew it was headed our way. Um, and to me, that gets boring. It gets old. How many times? I mean, are we going to talk about what, what a recession is technically or not for four hours? I mean, I, I don't want to do that. Do you? I'd hope not. I mean, I hope we we we're, we could find interesting topics, and and every now and then we stumble on something. It, and it's the kinda, truth is, all of us kind of already know. I mean, it, we know what's happening sure. with gas prices and grocery store prices, and and we know what it's like in the real world but 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 it goes back so to the comment but it goes back to the comment you made and once again you hardly ever say anything worth remembering but you did <laughs> wow in this rare moment when you said let's repeat it then when you said <laughs> i find it kind of interesting that um i don't say much worth repeating i just keep repeating it <laughs> i just beat you in the ground and in the submission um but, but now you talked about the the set mm-hmm. and the optics and the well, when you talk about the 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 likability and why that's important when it really shouldn't be. And I don't know, for some reason, what what came to my mind during that discussion is this is just, it's almost like a, a TV show, a production, and it really seems to be, you know, that on steroids with this administration. And I started thinking about that, that silly set they apparently built across the street from the White House somewhere where the president goes and he sits behind a tiny desk and they have the window that, that changes the little scene outside and what that is about, why they do that, and why they, they set up the show, I just don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to but me. It doesn't make any sense, but you can do that when metrics and measures don't apply. I mean, you can't escape the inevitable in the real world. You, you just said it a second ago. We knew we were in a session. I mean, I didn't need anybody to. When you start paying $4 for gas, 425 for gas, and, and $50 worth of groceries cost you 100 
you know sooner or later that is going to have a reciprocating effect in the economy, right? I mean, there is no way around that. I mean, that, 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 that money that you would have spent somewhere else is eventually going to have an effect or impact on, on the economy. We did uh, kind of a numeric uh, equation one day about how much money people we spend. Hold on, let's do it real quick. Between gas and diesel, we burn about 500 million gallons a day. I mean, the American economy burns about 500 million gallons of gas and diesel a day. At $2 a gallon, it's a billion bucks. At $4 a gallon, it's two billion bucks. That's a billion bucks a day spent on fuel, not on goods and services or other goods and services. How do you believe if you suck a billion dollars a day out of the economy, at some point in time, it doesn't have an effect at Walmart's earnings or on Amazon's earnings or on talk radio for that matter? Anybody, radio advertising. I mean, it's going to create Everything. problems, and you no question about it, that there is no doubt about it. That's just fuel. We're not talking about chicken wings and hamburger patties and, you know, what steak cost and what fish cost and what, you know, chicken cost. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people in the hospitality sector of the economy. Um, the price of chicken has tripled, quadrupled. Uh, the price of shrimp has tripled, quadrupled. Um, is it ever going back to where it was? See, I think that's the best question. I mean, is hamburger ever going back to where it was pre um macroeconomic stimulus but but in the world revenue here's here's where and this is the fed i mean this is really the fed's biggest contribution to the political world we live in the fed has allowed our policymakers and governmental leaders to escape reality it's a get out of jail free card they they spend money they don't have they obligate you the taxpayer to commitments that they can't meet the Fed, in turn, buys that debt with money they don't have. And one day we wake up and the Fed has $9 trillion on its balance sheet. And, you know, we're in economic distress. And if economic cycles were allowed to exist, I mean, in other words, if we went back to the traditional fashion of when when policymakers make mistakes, there's an eventual price to be paid, right? I mean, when you, I got two lines here. Um, and this, these are my words. Um, and I got a weird way of writing notes to myself. Um, Keynesian reduced demand. I mean, that, in essence, that is the theory of Keynesian economy. We reduce demand. Um, that's what the, the Fed's trying to do today. They're raising the price of borrowing money in hopes that you won't borrow to go buy. So they are, in essence, trying to reduce demand. Um, conservatives and, and libertarians would argue that, no, let's, let's lower taxes. Let's have responsible spending. Let's have a strong currency. Let's have minimal regulation. I mean, th- those are the points that conservatives, historically, I mean, Breeze would argue they don't do that anymore, and he's probably right. Um, we bought into this Keynesian and modern monetary theory, whether we admit it or not. But if we lived in a real world, you and I do, Freehold does, the majority of our listeners do. If the government lived in the bounds of uh, what I'd call the mayor of Realville, as Limbaugh always affectionately referred to himself as, then they would be, there wouldn't be a consideration for another bill. I mean, there's a, a half trillion dollar spending bill that Manchin signs up for. Uh, it's got some nuances in. It's got a bunch of um. It's got some money for green energy. It's got some um some continuation of incentives in healthcare. I tried to elaborate on that much earlier this morning and explain it. Um, but if you're in the market for healthcare and you do okay, you're not making a million dollars a year, but you're making more than fifty or sixty. You need to plunder around on the website. I mean, I'm being serious. I mean, if you're, especially if you're a private contractor like me or a sole proprietor or own your own business, um, 
if you don't have health care at your job, you need to go research the changes to the COVID legislation. And what they did, they raised the, the income threshold. In other words, if you made above 70 grand a year, you didn't qualify for incentives. Now that number is about double that. So, so if you're making, I'll give you a um, hypothetical here. So if you're making between you and your wife or you and your husband, you're making a hundred grand a year. I mean, you're doing okay. You're not getting rich, but you're doing okay. Um, not as good as you were doing pre-inflation, but you're doing okay. Um, you probably did. You probably didn't qualify for much of a uh, um, a subsidy when it came to the healthcare market. Today, it would probably triple the amount of subsidy wow. you get from the federal government. And Rev's exactly right. I mean, he said it this morning that they're heading toward this universal healthcare system. It may end up being a single payer. I don't know. But, but they're obviously trying to entice people to become a participant in the healthcare exchange. And, and if you're doing the math and you're, you're honest to yourself, it probably makes sense. They might sense. just make it attractive sure it enough. I mean, if the, if, the, um, if the subsidy went from $200 to $1,000 and you're saving $800 a month on healthcare because of policy changes that, that happened as a result of COVID, and now this legislation the Manchin has signed up on um, commit $64 billion to extending some of these expiring federal subsidies. And all it did is raise the income level to which you qualify. I mean, this is, that's what it did. It said, hey, you know, we're in the business of giving people free money, so let's give everybody some of what they deserve. And there's always been a percentage of poverty. In other words, if you're making 200% of the poverty level in America, you qualify for sub, a subsidy. That number now is somewhere in excess of $100,000. So if you make over $100,000, you qualify for a subsidy via the healthcare exchange, and that seems to me to have been placed in in perpetuity. But but once again, the, we live in these crazy times because there is no metric or measure to hold the government accountable. And maybe I mean it may, maybe you know the likability factor. How much would you like the government if they told you tomorrow that they had to reduce your Social Security payment or suspend your Medicare benefit? I mean, in all honesty, if it were a business, if they lived in the real world like we do. They couldn't honor a Medicare payment. I mean, when you get a Medicare, when you qualify and are, are eligible for Medicare and you go to the doctor and you get a card and you give them that card and the doctor says, that card's not any good. What do you mean? You're overdrawn. Insufficient funds. There's not any money in that account. What do you mean there's not any money in that account? The government gave me this card. I mean, imagine what would happen if mm. the government were held accountable that way. You're held accountable that way. I'm held accountable that way. The majority of consumers in America carry your debit or credit card to the bank or to the um to the restaurant or the bar and, and not have any money and try to swap it. You probably got a little overdraft protection. I mean, most people have that sort of protection. Um, but but imagine going to the doctor, giving him your Medicare card, and the doctor says that's not any good. That account is overdrawn. I mean, there's nothing on that card. That card's not any good. It's not worth the paper or plastic it's written on. I mean, that's the world we live in, but they've exempted themselves from that world, and and it's dangerous to get here because next thing you know, the Fed has $9 trillion on its balance sheet, and inflation is I mean, just hyperinflation, uberinflation, inflation like we've not seen in modern American political history. And, and but, but we still we, we still kind of mosey along and nothing to see here. You know, we'll figure this out sooner or later. Is somebody on the phone? Let's go there. Wayne in Florence. Morning, Wayne. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Hey, um, does Biden sit in his office and 
think to itself how stupid Americans are that they believe everything. Because anybody I've seen in the Biden administration, if you ask them a real question, they push it over to something else. What I mean, I mean, I understand that's what politics have been throughout history, but Biden does it, and his his cronies do it on a different level. Wayne, it's bizarre. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. It's bizarre. I've never, I mean, I've seen administrations I disagreed with. I mean, the Obama administration, I probably disagreed with the Obama administration more than I do the Biden administration. But but maybe, just maybe, a lot of this is, and I think Breeze touched on this yesterday, um, Biden is the, the pawn in the game. I mean, he's the mark. You know, you, you can't really blame Biden for making bad decisions because you don't believe he's competent to make decisions. So you've got the Brian Deeses of the world and the the Obama acolytes that have surrounded Obama, excuse me, Biden, and they've really got it as good as you could possibly have it. We want to execute and implement all these liberal policies, and here's this old man that most Americans don't believe knows what he's doing. He'll he'll take the blame. Right. Seventy five percent of Americans don't want Biden to run for reelection. Seventy five percent of Democrats don't want Biden to run for reelection. Um, they, they're using him as a bit of a stooge. Here's a guy the public clearly knows is in cognitive decline. So we'll just it's a little like give it to Mikey. Mikey will eat anything. Put it. In, I mean, <laughs> and then when you ask him about the polls, he turns around and said, "Hey, Jack. Yeah, polls. They say they want me to run but, again." But I mean, but imagine if you are so you if you believe. But if you're a policy wonk and you are a liberal and you're in the White House and you you know you're talking to Obama or some of the Obama strategists, David Axelrod comes to mind. Um, and you, you scheme up this, this policy initiative that is incredibly liberal, anti-capitalist, socialist, communist, whatever word you want to put there. All you got to do is put it on the, the teleprompter. He doesn't know what he's reading. I mean, do you really believe that Joe Biden, before he goes and does a press conference, do you believe he reviews his notes? I mean, do you believe he marks out or underlines or highlights anything? I mean, you've seen me do this. I've got highlights everywhere and marks and, and denotions and, you know, um, the first two words I put on the, or the first three words this morning, Spider-Man hungry. But that's kind of talking in code because Brian D said yesterday or the day before that, um, yeah, we're having issues. I mean, yeah, you know, the economy is, is in, I mean, we're having inflation issues in the economy, but there are countries where people are hungry. There are people where, where we're having famines. At least we're not having a famine. So, so here we are, uh, the economic side, um, the, it, it has gotten down to, well, at least we're not having a famine. But that, that's kind of where we've ended up. And go to the COVID vaccine. Well, at least it doesn't turn into Spider-Man. I mean, it doesn't stop infection, doesn't stop spread, doesn't stop carrying. But at least it doesn't turn into, <laughs> into Spider-Man. Um, and, and, yeah, and, the, a low well, I mean, and the economy, you know, well, at least you're not hungry. Well, the majority of you aren't. I mean, I know you're having to pay three times as much for food and twice as much for gas. But at least you're getting where you're going. <laughs> And at least you're not hungry. I mean, there's some of these countries that experience a famine or don't have energy and fuel. And we are blessed. And we need to understand that. But those blessings are not guaranteed. Those blessings are not for eternity. Those blessings are not something that we can take lightly. We must be serious about securing and protecting and defending those blessings. Did they come from God? Yes. All blessings, I think, come from God. Did God reward us for empowerment? Uh, a people and accepting, I mean, I think unali- or inalienable is an important word, the God-given rights that you and I have, but we have a responsibility to those rights. We've got to defend and protect those rights. And I think we're doing a lousy job 
of that today. And I think one reason, and this goes back to the Epic Grant, I don't have any Epic Grants, but I think the one previous was an Epic Grant when, I mean, Rev got all excited about accusing people of certain things. He likes when I make it personal. When when I said, (laughs) you, it's your fault for doing this. You you called him out. But I mean, why is Trump not the president? Because people voted against him. People didn't vote for Biden. People voted against Donald Trump. Of the 81 million supposed voters that Biden got, I mean, I questioned that number. The majority of you questioned that number. But let's, for argument's sake, say he got 81 million. I mean, let's say every vote was legitimate. Every vote can. You don't believe it. I don't believe it. But let's assume, for argument's sake, that every, all of those 81 million ballots cast were legitimate and bona fide. How many were for Biden and how many were against Trump? The overwhelming majority were against Donald Trump. 92% of Democrats today say in a Biden-Trump re-election campaign, they're voting for Biden. Defend that. I mean, the, the, the 92% of Democrats defend that vote in a honest and, and, and matter-of-fact way. You can't. You can't defend that. You don't like Trump. And the point I try to make, and I stand by this comments, your opinion of, of the president doesn't matter when it comes to likability or not. No, no I, I admit that likability is a big deal. I mean, I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it again. Do I know you? Do I like you? The candidate that proves himself to be likable normally wins the election. That's a, a sad commentary on American politics. Um, if you've got a doctor, let's say you need your knee replaced. And there's this guy who, I mean, he's famous for drinking beer with people and telling jokes and stories. You'll never find a better friend to go on a tailgate with. Hunting trip, he's a blast. Vacation, you'll never have more fun. But he's kind of got a track record of goofing up knee replacements. I mean, you got a buddy who had to get his redone. You got a cousin who three years ago went to that same doctor and something just wasn't right with it. Knee never got exactly the way it should. And you've got this other guy who's almost a jerk. Doesn't speak to people in the grocery store. Doesn't hold the door for the old lady who wants to get in. But he's got an impeccable record of knee replacements. Everything you've ever read, heard, studied, researched proves him to be unbelievably competent at knee replacements. Where are you going? I mean, are you going to limp around on vacation with a guy you like? Or are you going to be back in the gym having a guy who you didn't like? You're laughing. But, I mean, in essence, that's kind of what we've, that's what we've reduced ourselves to, guys. And we must demand better of ourselves. And when you go to the poll and you vote for a president, forget about whether you like the guy or not. You like the lady or not. Can they do the job? Are they net negative or net positive for the United States of America? Because their job is to command the American government, right? I mean, that's their job. They put an EPA director in place. They put a secretary of commerce in place. They put a um, uh, a defense uh, secretary in place. They put all these people in charge of all these government agencies. The president does that. Why does it matter whether you like him or not? It matters to you. And that's you being full of yourself. I accept that likability is still a big factor, but it shouldn't be. We've reduced ourselves to a popularity contest. And the majority of you, and here's where I got personal, the majority of you college-educated females, the soccer moms, the suburban females, you're who bailed on Trump. And the data is pretty empirical. The reason you bailed, you didn't like the guy. You didn't like his bombast. You didn't like his narcissism. You didn't like his attitude. But you should vote for him 
because you believe he can run the country better than the other person. And I don't know anybody that can look at me with a straight face and say, I voted for Joe Biden because I thought he could run the country better than Donald Trump. A lot of you had an excuse. January 6th, Trump's behavior, um, you know, leading up to the election, the big lie, saying the big steal, saying the election was stolen. That's a crutch. That, that's just something for you to give as, as an excuse. The reason you didn't vote for Trump, you didn't like the guy. Well, where are we? We're in a recession, and gas is $4 a gallon, and the only answer the Fed has is to reduce demand. In the most prosperous nation in the history of mankind, our legislators and policymakers and those in charge of creating sound monetary policy are trying to reduce demand. They're trying to make the economy shrink. They're trying to make the economy smaller to control or contain inflation. That's the most prosperous nation in America. And the abuse of our government has been allowed by, I'm going to be honest, we, the people. Take a break. Back in a minute. See, I want to say something. That might be the best bumper we've ever had on Wake Up Carolina. What is that? That's a good one. What What is that song? That's Stevie Ray Vaughan, isn't it? It's Stevie Ray Vaughan. He's one of the greatest guitarists ever, right? Dave, do you want to explain to him why I used that one? No, you tell. Because it's... it, the name of the song is one of your favorite phrases of all time. Okay. It's very subtle, subtle. tie in here. Scuttlebutt. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you'd really have to know Stevie Ray Vaughan, and you'd really have to pay attention to the show to, to hear the, the tie in to that song that Mike was thinking about when he chose it. That is a great, great bumper. In fact, I would make a recommendation. I mean, I, you know, I don't have the, I mean, I, I'm not the producer. I'm not the, the, the guy here all day, you know, putting the, the, the schedule together. But I'd love to hear that kick the morning off. I mean, I'm just, I'm just there saying, that there, there's something about that song that gets you to do it again, Friel. If you don't mind playing again, um, I'm sorry. Andy. Is that is that too hard? Okay, I, I'm I'm being a pain in the butt. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm messing up my likability here. Uh, <laughs> Friel liked me until just now, and I don't think he likes me much right now. Um, I just think that is a very characteristic ring. That sounds like us. Am I right? Yeah, I, mean, I agree. The, the, the beat, the tenor, the, uh, I don't know, Steve Ray Vaughan is a great, he's passed away now, but he was a great, great guitarist. Not not a mega star. You would agree with that. I mean, never had big, yeah. big selling albums, but in the world of guitarist, he was highly, highly regarded. Uh, see, I just think that sounds like mm-hmm. us, right? Yep. That's a good one. That's just a likable song. <laughs> talking about oh, likability that's just a likable ring to it it's a very likable yeah it's, think, it's very comfortable very comfortable okay. and it sounds like us i mean it sounds like something we would begin uh, the morning with 843-661-0937 the late stevie ray vaughn i should have known that because it sounded a little bit like his guitar playing mm-hmm. all these yeah. guys have their own style the style or, is or very riffs way doing, doing things hey i want to go back real quick and you know, I'll, I'll leave you um white affluent suburban college educated <laughs> females alone um i don't know how many of you listen to our show anyway um somebody asked me yesterday a sponsor um about the demo of our show i said a bunch of them i don't know i mean you know i bump into somebody all the time and they'll say hey can i talk to you about this or remember what you were talking about yesterday or this morning and and it's really created a a kind of a life of its own and the only reason is because of you and um we're good for one another i mean i think we're good for you and i know you're good for us because you keep me gainfully employed uh, the only job i have at community broadcasters is hosting an, an early morning four-hour radio show so if this falls apart i'm done i mean i got to figure out a way to get me some some subsidies from uh <laughs> from the government i do want to go back 
and, and talk. We'll touch on this real quick because you made an interesting comment. Another one um, during the break. Wow. Two in a day. Man. Two, What's up with that? Make a mark on the calendar there. Um, I've got a few days marked that Rev made an interesting comment. <laughs> I've got even fewer that he made two interesting comments. may have comments. never happened before. Uh, this it may could be a be. first. Freehold will review our last 10 years okay. of scheduling. <laughs> you know, I'm being a bit facetious here. Um, but, but no, in, in all honesty, when you go to the poll, think about this. Do you believe, I mean, today, I mean, if we had an election today, and I get you don't like Trump. I mean, I get that. I am well aware that I've read the polling more than you have ever thought about reading the poll and i've studied the subject more than you've ever considered studying the subject and i get the likability i mean i understand we're not vulcans i mean we're creatures of we're not creatures of logic we're emotional beings and as much as we'd like to set aside some of that emotion it's almost impossible for us to do so i accept that emotions are going to be a part of it i accept not liking someone is an emotional issue with the majority of us you know, I like this person. I don't like that person. But are they good at what they do? And I think the job of being president is too important. How do you separate yourself, the emotion I mean, it, from No, the- here's how you separate yourself. That, it, it's not an emotional. You either believe that reducing demand is good for the economy, or you believe in low taxes, responsible spending, um, strong currency, minimal restrictions, minimal regulations. I mean, you fundamentally, you know what you believe. I don't, I don't have to argue for you and what you believe. I mean, that's your prerogative. You are entitled to believe. You have every right to believe that reducing demand is good for the economy. I mean, the American dream allows you to say loudly <laughs> and proudly that, that I as am crazy a Keynesian. As that seems to well, me. I mean, sure, but you have that right, and you deserve that right. We should do everything to protect the right. For you to say, Ken, you know what I believe is good for the economy? Reducing demand. Well, if you believe that reducing demand, go vote for the Democrat. I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a natural strategy you should employ in, in your voting life. But if you believe that low taxes, responsible spending, strong currency, minimal regulation, if you believe that is the way forward, to me, you have an obligation to set your personal disposition aside and say, I don't like this guy, but he stands for everything I believe in. I've had a hundred people tell me about Trump. You know what it is? Here's what they'll say. You know, Ken, they'll sip their beer. You know, Ken, if you put Trump's policies on a sheet of paper and didn't tell me whose they were, I'd be 100% supportive of those policies that include low taxes, ah, responsible spending. I don't know anybody in Washington that believes in that anymore or can they, they really can't get off the hook i mean they, they they made a deal with the devil that being the fed and i don't know how you because unwind trump it. i mean in honesty was was not all about no. well, I mean, cutting back spending was but, but he, he, here's the point that both parties have to come to grips with and th- there is no doubt that fed activism has put us in a bad place fed distortion has put us in a bad place fed manipulation has put us all in a bad place the financial future of america's dire stop pretending it's not we are at the abyss. There is a number out there where people stop buying our debt. And when that happens, when, when we have a lack of demand for the dollar, we are in a precarious situation, period. Blame Democrats, blame Republicans. Both have not addressed, neither party have addressed some of the spending curve issues that are monumental. I'm talking about Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and eventually, you know, the, the, the service to debt. I mean, if you know, when the rates go up a little bit like today, America's more in debt. Why are we more in debt? Because the rate went up, the borrowing rate. We borrow money at a real cheap rate, but it's still borrowed money. Got to pay it back. 
So the rates are one and a half points higher today than they were two months ago. I mean, that's a substantial. Uh, I think the number was $400 billion. It, it'll, it'll creep up to a trillion dollars. So 25% of all the revenue we take in will go to pay interest on the debt. I mean, that's a staggering figure. We can't talk ourselves out of that. You can't vote for somebody likable enough to fix that. So, so we've got to be serious as a people. We, we've got to understand that not only is the Fed manipulated, distorted, and, and, and activated themselves to a point of causing great damage to the economy, here's the question I think we need to ask. Is it broken to the point of not being able to fix it? I mean, that's the scary part of this. Is it irreversible? Have we gotten ourselves to a place where there is no way out? I mean, I don't know that. I'm not an economist. I'm not educated in that field of expertise. But it seems to me, because we're celebrating 1% GDP growth, when we normally celebrate three, three and a quarter, you know, I mean, we're not an emerging economy anymore. So I discount some of that. In other words, back in the 40s and 50s, after the Second World War, I mean, we were rolling. But, but we should have been rolling because Europe was devastated. There was no um, economic engine in Europe. I mean, it was all torn to bits and, and pieces because of the World War. So America, I'm not saying it was the only show in town, but it was kind of sort of the last man standing. And out of that came an enormous economic boom and prosperity and a way of life changed. And we've exported a good bit of that. We've enjoyed most of it, but we have exported some of that. But at some point down the road, we, we committed to what I would call unsound monetary policy. And the, and, the, and the lack of being disciplined in our monetary policy led to debt, and it led to funding of programs with money we didn't have. And here we are. And I believe we're the financial abyss. And I believe it takes serious people to, to, to consider this problem and work on solutions. And if you're basing your vote on who you like or not, we're not going to fix it. We're simply not. I mean, do you like Dave better than you like Ken? Do you like Ken better than you like, you know, you like Freehold? That shouldn't matter when you go to the poll. Do you go to the poll and cast a ballot for someone who believes in um, a lack of fiscal restraint, the, 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 the willingness to go deeper and deeper and deeper in debt to allow the Fed to do whatever the Fed chooses to do, or do we implement sound monetary policy that I think includes lowering taxes, uh, responsible spending, and I think responsible spending, and here's where the crux of the argument really gets controversial. Are we going to tell Americans who have been made promises that the promises no longer are good? I mean, this is, that's what the political class in America has to do if we're going to get ourselves to a better place. Our political leadership that has made mistake after mistake after mistake have to accept responsibility for those mistakes, whether they were on your watch or not, whether you were in Congress or not. We have made decisions on entitlement programs that we simply cannot afford? Are we going to vote for people who will genuinely and in a grown-up way address that, or are we going to vote for the likable doctor, the doctor that may or may not fix your leg, but you love to play around to golf with him? Or are we going to vote for people who we find to be competent and committed to a cause of constraining, restricting, um, defining more clearly what government's role and responsibility? That's where we are. I mean, I sincerely believe that's where we are. And, and, you know, whether we're in a recession, I mean, of course we're in a recession. And, and I, you know, we've talked about it for 60 days. And no matter what J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon, I mean, these guys have skin in the game. I mean, everything they say is for a reason. They're not telling you the truth. They're trying to create a narrative. They're trying to kick the can down the road is what they're doing. I mean, Dimon will probably today, I mean, he won't, he won't deny what he said earlier. He'll say, well, some new data came in. 
You know, there, there were some things we didn't see coming. I mean, Diamond knows. I mean, if I know it, he knows it. I mean, if I figured out we're in a recession, you bet your sweet, you know what, that Jamie Diamond has. And Diamond knows, but it's in his best interest to say we're not. It's in his best interest to delay the inevitable for as long as he can. And, and we've got to stop with that sort of nonsense. And we've got to start being honest with ourselves and admit collectively, we've all allowed this country to be a shadow of its former self. How do we reinstitute sanity? How do we become what we were intended to be? And I'm not real optimistic that this current political leadership is going to lead us to a better place. Um, and that really goes to well, something I said earlier. Place they well, I mean, take and, and, and really and truly, I mean, let's, let's close with this, and then we'll take our last break or next to last break. We talked a little bit earlier, and, I, and I'll go down this road a good bit tomorrow. Um, you know, who are the likely suspects? There's an interesting article. We touched on it a little bit earlier. The New Statesman wrote an article in uh, 06, 05, somewhere there about, about Barack Obama. And Time Magazine had an article on Springsteen, I've Seen the Future of Rock and Roll. This was in 1973, and his name is Bruce Springsteen. Well, the New Statesman said, I've seen the future of the Democrat Party, and his name is Barack Obama. Well, they were right. I mean, without question, they nailed that. I mean, that was a prognosis of which they need to put on their resume forever. But they're arguing today, in similar fashion, that J.D. Vance is the guy. He gives the intellectual horsepower, the intellectual underpinning, He's a thoughtful America firster. And an interesting um, paragraph in this article I read late yesterday afternoon, um, they, they refer to this group as an alt-right group. I don't think it's alt-right at all. I think America First is a very mainstream, uh, kind, of, kind of a working-class centrist um, notion, idea, political agenda. But, but the one thing they have in common, and by I mean they, Teal and Vance and Masters, I don't know that Trump has this in common with them. I don't know that DeSantis does. Um, because those guys are, I mean, there's a little bit more politically there for them to be, uh, you know, evaluated. I mean, we know Trump's politics. We know DeSantis. We don't know J.D. Vance's politics. We know what he says. We don't know Blake Masters. We don't know Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, um, we know what he says about China and trade and, and globalism. But here's what I find very interesting, that the majority of these people who are leading this intellectual part of America first believe that the governing U.S. establishment has become a regime run by elites that is ripe for dismantlement. I can't tell you how that makes my heart flutter when I read that. I mean, that, that is as well said as anybody I've heard put it, that this, this I mean, they say alt-right group. I'm going to say this intellectual movement within America First believes and regards the governing U.S. establishment as a regime run by elites that is ripe for dismantlement. Teal's not wasting his money. Teal's investing his money in an attempt to dismantle this regime run by governmental and corporate elites and have really and truly fed at the trough of government far more than they deserve. And you are the backstop. You are the American taxpayer, and every check the government writes is not secured by Exxon. It's not backstopped or guaranteed by Amazon. It's you, we, the taxpayer. And we've got to take this far more seriously than we are. Back in a minute. The epitome, uh, the epitome of rate. Uh, what did I say? The epitome, epitome of, of mediocre radio. The epitome of mediocre radio <laughs> That's a good meets one. the excellence of um, of guitar playing. There right? you go. Is that Stevie Ray Vaughan again? Yeah. I, I mean, if, if, if you, you've been in rock and roll a long time, and I, I can tell that Freehold's a music fan. So who's the greatest guitarist ever? I mean, is it Jimi Hendrix? Is it Stevie Ray Vaughan? 
So Friel's not. Steve people Ray. can't see you nodding your head, man. You got to say something. Uh, is it Stevie Ray Vaughan? For me, it's Stevie Ray Vaughan. Okay, the greatest guitarist ever, including mm-hmm. Eric Clapton. I'm going to put Stevie Ray. I'm okay. A, <clears throat> I'm going to put Jimmy Page up there. Jimmy Page, um, great guitarist. Uh, who else? Jimi Hendrix. Is Joe Walsh in the conversation? No. Um, I think he's in the conversation. You do? Sure. You're more mainstream. <laughs> yeah, Dave loves hits. I do. So whoever's He'll admit that. The He'll admit is, that. Yeah. He's the likable guy. Yes. I mean, Dave, Dave's the likable <laughs> morning breakfast plate or whatever it was he was called. <laughs> oh, here we right? go. That's true. Dancing Dave oh, turns into the I, breakfast. I, I, How in the world do you end up on a... So, so a guy has a, tr- a career path. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got a lot of credibility, here right? Go. He's a, He's been a producer. He's been an operations manager. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a he's just a competent guy. knows what he's doing when he walks into the building. Right. He commands and demands respect. <laughs> okay. um, people bow down. Oh, yeah. Um, they, they respect the legacy get, get that he is. The Royal Rev of radio. Mm-hmm. And um, so... so so the breakfast flake was it Dancing Dave or Breakfast Flake that came first? It was, it was Dancing Dave first. So Dancing Dave was yes. first. Mm-hmm. I just got to be proud of that. Just and I, then and so then I the started breakfast my radio flake. career doing the night show. Okay, it was Dancing Dave. That's pretty creative, Dancing yeah. Dave. I would have never guessed that. I mean, you know, it'd have been anyway. Yeah, so Dancing Dave, dance, by the Dancing way. Dave morphs into Breakfast Flake. It did right? for a while too. Yeah. Would, would that have been a more? Um, would, would that have made you more famous as fame goes? Yeah. Would you have been more famous as a member of the Breakfast Flakes <laughs> than you were as Dancing Dave? Well, I would hope so, but I'm asking for an answer. Yeah. Bre- Breakfast Flakes. That was morning drive. So sure, you get a little more attention doing morning shows. Okay. As you know. So was there a an interim? In other words, when you when you stopped, and I don't know how you do this, but when you stopped being Dancing Dave and turned mm-hmm. into Breakfast Flake, mm-hmm. and you stopped being the Breakfast Flake, was there any? Did you all of a sudden turn into Royal Rev of Radio, or was there something between those two? There, there was a lot of regular me in between. So years and years of just being your, you know, standard old radio DJ playing, you know, top forty or rock and roll for decades in between until you came up with the Royal Rev moniker. So, 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 so the Royal, you. so the only three monikers you've ever had is Dancing Dave, mm-hmm. a member of the Breakfast Flakes, right, and the Royal Rev of Radio. That's it. So when you were doing, you were just Dave Baker. Yep, that's it. Spinning the records. Sure. And um, spinning the records. Was that a sign of maturity? <laughs> I, I think so. We even used to have jingles. You know, the jingle singers, Dave Baker. Oh, okay. Seriously, I'm, mm. I'm, mm. I'm serious. I know my next song. Wonder, wonder if Stevie Ray's ever played a song uh, about Dave Baker. <laughs> I'm sure. Or not. Dancing Dave, or the I'm Breakfast sure. Flake, or the Royal. Would you Ram like to have a jingle? Ready Ken or? I don't need a jingle. No, I want some jingle in my pocket. <laughs> I don't need different kind I of jingle. I want to win that lottery, man. I want to win that billion dollar lottery. Look, in, in radio, when I was first getting in radio, you really knew you made it when you had a jingle made with your name in it. I get it. That was a big deal. Well, I mean, at, 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 Thank one, you. at Thank one you point much. in time, um, the, the guy on the radio was it. I mean, yeah, I remember that. I mean, I wanted to be guy on the radio. I didn't know what to do, how to do it, where to do it, when to do it. But I wanted to be the guy, you know, that bumper sticker, that I, I, competitor here, WKZQ in Myrtle Beach. Oh, yeah. Wow. And those guys did the show up on top of the- um, Those are good times. The, the, was it the Gay Dolphin, if I'm not mistaken? Think so, yeah. It's kind of a little studio. Great radio. On top of there, yeah. Golly. Uh, memories. A lot of memories. Take a break. We'll be back, or maybe not, in just a few minutes.